the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast Podcast. It's Tuesday, August 8th, 2023, and this is the Steak for Breakfast Podcast, episode 263. Make sure to subscribe to the show. It's available across every downloadable podcasting platform. Find us on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Check out the Steak for Breakfast link tree that'll take you to the show's Instagram, our latest Substack, and verified accounts on Twitter, Getter, and Truth Social. Welcome, everybody. Big Tuesday edition of the show today. I'm Roan. Will Upton's going to be in co-hosting with us today. We've got a great slate of guests coming in. MAGA Inc. War Room spokeswoman Caroline Levitt's going to be here. We're going to sit down with Newsweek syndicated columnist Josh Hammer. We're going to get inside the numbers with the People's Pundit. Richard Barris, and the Walkaway Movement's founder, Brandon Strzok, is going to be joining us for the first time. Lots of breaking news and headlines. Donald Trump rocked events in Alabama and South Carolina this weekend. We'll bring you the highlights. At the same time, Donald Trump's legal battles are ramping up. As everybody continues to ignore Joe Biden's, we'll provide some analysis and we'll play a little presidential primary roundup. But before we get into any of the headlines, let's take it over to the Granite State and change the way you consume your news. Smokey, this is not Nam, this is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior, America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by. All right, big Tuesday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast coming in hot today. Guys, make sure you're following us across every downloadable podcasting platform imaginable and on all of our social medias, find the Steak for Breakfast podcast. Joining us first on the show today and getting things kicked off, she's the official spokeswoman for MAGA War Room, Inc. Always happy to sit down with former congressional candidate, Ms. Caroline Levin. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me on Steak for Breakfast, one of my favorite shows of all time. Oh, we really appreciate that. Like, we appreciate the time we get to spend with you. So busy times out in New Hampshire. I did see they had an amazing non-Trump attended because he was in other states over the weekend, but just Trump rally, barbecue, all-day event there. It was attended by a lot of people. The ground game in New Hampshire really seems to be ramping up, and, and President Trump in the polling is doing stronger than ever before there. Can you give us the latest on kind of the ground game that's going on out there in the Granite State? Oh, most definitely. Look, there was a massive rally for President Trump in New Hampshire, an organic grassroots rally of support. There was a caravan of cars, hundreds of cars with uh, patriots proudly flying their Trump 2024 flag. Their don't tread on me flags, their USA flags all throughout southern New Hampshire uh, on their way to a barbecue uh, in, in support of President Trump. And I think you are not seeing this type of genuine grassroots enthusiasm from any other candidate from any of the two parties in America right now. We the people are strongly standing with President Trump, one, because we know he delivered for us before. We remember just a couple of years ago when our lives were better, our economy was booming, our communities were safe, our border was secure, there was peace around the world, and now we've seen the hell that Joe Biden and the Democrat Party can put us through, and average Americans, we are all starting to realize that this administration has it out for Donald Trump. They are doing everything they can to weaponize our government institutions against him, to put him in jail. And that is causing a groundswell of support from Americans who love President Trump, who love this country and believe in the rule of law, believe in the Constitution and understand that if we have four more years of Joe Biden, America, as we know her and love her, will cease to exist. 
certainly will. And uh, I think a lot more people, especially potential voters, are starting to see that as we delve into this 2024 primary season. Caroline, I want to talk about the work that you guys are doing over the organization MAGA War Room. And, uh, you know, the PAC has put out some really powerful videos, but it's not like you guys are trying to bend reality or stretch the imagination or rewrite history, which seems to be not only the methodology that the rest of the GOP primary field has done so far to this point, but it's the same thing that we're hearing out of Washington, D.C. with the current Biden administration. Here's the thing, though. When you see these polls coming out, and it's not just the ones that are directly related to the primary, and, you know, we see Donald Trump with a commanding lead anywhere between 30 and 50-plus points in every single poll, especially the first five states. Then you look at the national averages in the GOP primary. The numbers are almost identical. And for the last now three weeks, Donald Trump in many national polls, head-to-head matchup with Joe Biden, is beating him by anywhere from three to seven points. You guys go out there and drop these videos that are just showing not only how the government and, and you know, social media and, and the entire apparatus has been weaponized against President Trump, but how important it is to get involved and get your hands dirty in this fight right now. Tell us about some of the great works that you guys are doing down there and some of the uh, incredible ways you're out there supporting the president and his campaign. Yeah, sure. Well, if anyone who isn't following us, go to MAGA Inc. War Room. We're on Twitter. We're on Truth Social. And you can see our new fire ad, if I do say so myself, that we just dropped this morning at 5 a.m. We're spending $1.9 million over the next week to blast it over the airwaves on CNN and Fox News and Newsmax. So every American across party lines can understand the intricate corruption scheme that our president, our commander in chief of our United States military has been engaged in and involved in over the past couple of decades when he's been a quote unquote public servant, but he's He's become a multi-multi-millionaire, and it's because he's been using his crackhead corrupt son, Hunter, to engage in an international bribery scheme and accept millions of dollars in wire transfers to 20 LLCs from foreign nationals. It really sounds like a movie, but it's reality, and we want every American to understand how corrupt Joe Biden is heading into this next election. I mean, it's—well, it's, you talk about a movie— so that would mean, would you consider it somewhere between, like a, a combination of Weekend at Bernie's meets Mission Impossible? <laughs> I think it's like the worst horror movie you could ever think of to imagine that somebody who spent 40 plus years in public service, uh, again, has become a multimillionaire and has ripped off so many people for so long. And they should make a movie out of it someday. They probably won't, though, because Hollywood is a cabal of pedophiles and elites who hate who hate Republicans and uh, cover for Democrats. So I won't hold my breath on that. But uh, it certainly is concerning. And we just want every American to know the truth, because when they do, when they understand the implications of Biden's corruption, in addition to understanding the consequences of his terrible policies, they turn away from him. Donald Trump is trouncing Joe Biden in many general election polls. And he's also beating him with independence big time in nearly every poll right now. The latest from Harvard Harris, I believe, had him winning independence by 18 points. Yep. And so the game is over when people know the facts. And we want to make sure people know the facts. Now, when you talk about the amount of independents that are already voting for Donald Trump and now polls are starting to include, you know, I, I see it between like an eight and 11 percent margin of undecideds. Let's just say Donald Trump gets half of those. It, it's beyond over more over than it already is. 
which is where I want to kind of segue next, Caroline. The rest of this GOP field, you know, we've talked about it with a lot of other guests, a lot of people who worked in the prior Trump administration, a lot of people on President Trump's team who currently come on the show on a regular basis. They are running some multiverse version of a fake primary where the mainstream media, all of them, uh, you know, uh, the print press, the billionaire donor class, they act like Donald Trump doesn't exist. They act like, you know, they, the the top person in every single poll is redacted and the real primary lies tens and tens and tens of percents below that in the actual primary where all of these establishment rhinos, uh, you know, unproven outsiders and new fresh faces are, are duking it out for, you know, the life of the republic here, which couldn't be anything further from the truth. The way we see it as, it's a bunch of people who are making sure that their consultants get paid. They're vying for future book deals and weekend spots on as contributors on Newsmax and Fox News and places like that. And, you know, if they don't beat up America first enough, like some of them have, you know, legitimately stayed out of the fray, they might be able to serve in a future Trump administration. How bad is it? And how wrong is it for this party from the top to bottom to treat not only a former president, but someone who's already pretty much walk away with this nomination process. And, and in a time where we should all be circling the wagons and focusing on getting Joe Biden out of office and defeating the Democrats, we're going to have to go through this dog and pony show literally for TV ratings and talking points while Donald Trump's legal processes, you know, play out over the course of the next year. And it's also allowed none of these people to release any kind of a policy platform. They've all been advised by their, you know, campaign consultants. Oh, you don't have to put out anything that's going to piss off America first or the MAGA people because maybe Donald Trump won't be able to run. Then you could say whatever they want because then you'll be the only choice. How, how hurtful is that to the overall cause that we're trying to, you know, save this country right now? Like you so, you know, elegantly put it just a few minutes ago. And, and we have to go through these motions with just the way the establishment already has been. Yeah. Well, look, Donald Trump is the only candidate in this race who has been viciously smeared and attacked by the establishment on both sides of the aisle since he came down that golden escalator. If you remember, you know, in 2016, the Republican establishment wrote him off. Jeb Bush was supposed to be the guy. Donald Trump shocked the establishment, won the nomination and then shocked the deep state and won the presidency. They attacked him when he was in office, even though he was delivering record unprecedented results for the American people, cutting peace deals in the Middle East, securing our border, having the lowest unemployment rate in decades for all Americans, Hispanic Americans, African Americans. Everyone was doing well under President Trump's tenure because he's a man that is doing this for the people and he's not beholden to the donor class or any of the wealthy lobbyists on K Street. And that's exactly why they hate him and smear him. Now you see in this election, cycle the same thing. Ron DeSantis has become the new Jeb Bush. The billionaire donor class is pushing him up against Donald Trump and hoping shame, shamelessly uh, that Joe Biden's Justice Department will be able to get away with their political persecution uh, so that D Donald Trump won't be the nominee. Well, newsflash, we the people stand behind Donald Trump more than ever before. And Joe Biden campaigned to be 
a unifier in chief. I would say Donald Trump is the real unifier in chief. He's bringing together the Republican Party and independents and old school, soft working class Democrats that are fed up with this corruption, fed up with the inflation, fed up with the crime in our inner American cities, fed up with seeing our fellow American citizens walking around like zombies because they're hooked on Chinese fentanyl. And so Donald Trump is uniting people from all walks of life to fight against this tyrannical government under Joe Biden's regime. And they can't stand it. And that's why they're doing everything they can to to try and remove his name off the ballot. And every dollar that is wasted in this primary fighting amongst each other is a dollar that helps Joe Biden and the Democrats. You're 100% right on that. And, and thank God we've got great organizations like, you know, MAGA Inc. out there uh, pointing all of this stuff out. One of the things you just touched on, Caroline, I'm going to hit it again real bad. I think in a few months, we don't have to say Scott Walker or Jeb Bush ever again because we're going to have Ron DeSantis as the new gold standard for what failed presidential candidates look like in a race where they had no business participating in. It really didn't have to be this way. I already see major corporations like Fox News and, you know, the, the whole Murdoch apparatus there uh, segueing towards looking at 2028 with the, you know, Gavin Newsom and, and Ron DeSantis debate. That, I mean, I, I was confused when I saw that last week. I was like, did Ron DeSantis switch parties to the Democrat side and now he's running to challenge Joe Biden as a Democrat because he's debating Gavin Newsom? Like, I don't get it, but I do understand that they want people to, you know, Get over Donald Trump, even if we have to deal with another Trump presidency. And I just think that's the poorest way of doing it. When you've seen the way that these guys rolled out their campaign, everything from the hundreds of millions of dollars that they're spending all the way down to the poorly attended events, what can you say about what's left of the Ron DeSantis campaign before they unceremoniously and ungracefully bow out of this primary? <laughs> well, look, Ron DeSantis' campaign has been an utter disaster since his failure to launch on Twitter spaces a few months ago. He's burned through millions of dollars of his donor ca cash, and the only return on investment those donors have received is Ron DeSantis sinking in the polls. He's falling behind Tim Scott in Iowa. He's falling behind Nikki Haley in South Carolina. He's falling behind Chris Christie, for Pete's sake, Oof. in my great home state <laughs> of New Hampshire. Ron DeSantis will not be the nominee. And after this race that he has ran, attacking Donald Trump, flip-flopping on his positions, attacking the MAGA base. I mean, just today, he said he believes Joe Biden fairly won the 2020 election. Are you kidding me? Mm. He will only be remembered for this failed presidential campaign. And it's really a shame. He should have taken Donald Trump's advice many months ago and, and stuck to what he was elected to do, which is govern the great people in the state of Florida. But he hasn't done that. His campaign's been an epic failure. And he says that he's going to send woke to the dustbin of history after this primary, Ron DeSantis will be in the dustbin of history as another failed politician who couldn't beat Donald Trump. I mean, I don't, I don't hear any lies detected. I'm, you see, <laughs> Caroline, you have people like Carrie Lake in, in any state that she goes to, filling venues, double, triple, sometimes ten times the amount of people that Ron DeSantis, who's running a presidential campaign, in, in the battleground states, the first five primary and caucus states can't get, you know, two dozen people to show up to. It, it says a lot for, you know, that people go around and all these pundits in the media, like a movement doesn't belong to Donald Trump. America first doesn't belong to Donald Trump, you know. But yes, it does. Donald Trump already brought us to uh, a, and through a prosperous presidency. And, and the American people understand that on the other side of this nightmare, which is the Biden regime, we have, uh, you know, 
the chance to do it all over again, and as he puts it, better than ever before when Donald Trump wins next year. Last thing I want to touch with you on, Caroline, in just a few hours, the 45th president is going to be in the Granite State, given a policy-driven platform. You guys are going to be at the event. It's going to be pretty... Uh, Great to hear. We're going to cover it on our Friday edition of the show, like we do all of the president's speaking events. What can you tell our listenership as a little bit of a preview? Well, what I can tell you is that there are hundreds of uh, great Granite Staters that I've personally heard from that are very excited to see the former president tomorrow. His He has a groundswell of support here in the first of the nation state. He's winning in the polls here by more than 30 points, beating DeSantis, Christie, Nikki Haley, and all the others who have spent a lot of time here not to make up any ground on the former president. So looking forward to a, a fantastic speech, a packed house, and a lot of enthusiastic patriots who are fired up to send Donald Trump on his way to the nomination. We're the first to do it here in New Hampshire, and he's going to win our primary for the third time. No doubt. One sidebar question I need to ask you. You did mention Chris Christie rising in the polls a little bit there. Not as any kind of a challenger, but just a little bit. What What is New Hampshire known for food-wise? What's their, you know, top, <laughs> top five, top one dish? Because something is bringing him there repeatedly. And, I mean, they've got, you know, the State Fair in Iowa. They've got some good barbecue down in South Carolina. What is the drawing power food-wise in North Carolina? What would you say is some of their top cuisine? <laughs> well, we do have uh, good old New Hampshire maple, maple syrup. Chris Christie definitely looks like he likes pancakes with a lot of syrup on it. So maybe that's been the case. But, you know, New Hampshire politically, we're known for our diner stops. Every candidate has to come here, sit in diners, talk to voters. Uh, and so I'm hoping our small businesses don't run out of food every time Chris Christie comes here to visit. Well, sitting in diners, I could see talking to voters, not so much. Caroline, I want to be able to live link the, the pack in the show description today, and we're going to drive everyone to uh, it and your social media as well. So can you give us the handles? Absolutely. It's MAGA Inc. War Room at MAGA Inc. War Room. Twitter's Truth Social. You can find me personally at K-L-E-A-V-I-T-T, Caroline Levitt at Twitter. Truth Social, Instagram, Facebook, love hearing from so many great patriots across this country who are fired up to reelect Donald Trump. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. And our listenership loves hearing from you every time she's on Steak for Breakfast. This is the official spokeswoman for MAGA Inc. War Room. Ms. Caroline Levin, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you. God bless you. And Jamie Comer and Jim Jordan have done an incredible job in their committees. They really have been finding out. And they're being blocked every way along the way, but they don't care. They're going and they've got a lot more. And they they tell me and they tell everybody, you just watch them. They say there's much more to come and it's really bad. Let's look at the facts comparing crooked Joe Biden and President Donald J. Trump. I have this gorgeous head of hair. I like when I take a shower, I want water to pour down on me. When you go into these new homes with showers, the water drips down slowly slowly you have suds beautiful nice wonderful suds a lot of money procter and gamble all that crap that they sell they say is good probably cost them cost them about two cents and they sell it for ten dollars but you can't it, it takes you ten minutes to wash your hair you know what you do you just stay in the shower about ten times longer than you would have it's the same you probably use more water and they better do and stop just handing out money every time uh, 1.7 trillion to the democrats and they get 10 votes it's i'm telling you lindsey they have something on mitch mcconnell there's no way that he's doing this they've got something on mitch mcconnell it's a terrible thing that's happening with that guy and with the uh, with the whole they got to step up 
the House is stepping up. They're working hard and they are stepping up and I think a lot of things are happening. All right, coming back now, beginning our news portion of the show. Noah's out of the office this week. Antoinette's on vacation. So I went to the bullpen and brought out one of our uh, trusted relievers here on the Steak for Breakfast podcast. He formerly worked in the Treasury Department, and we're really happy to have co-hosting for the news portion of the show today. Mr. Will Upton, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. I didn't want to steal it from you in your introduction, so I'm going to let you announce it to our listenership. You had a... uh, notch added to your work resume recently and 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 joined one of our great friends here on the podcast you want to tell our listenership a little bit about some of the developments in uh your life right now yes yeah yeah so i I just joined the national pulse uh as a junior editor over there uh so i'm doing a lot of our domestic coverage and political coverage here in the u.s um you can check us out at the nationalpulse.com uh we also have an app now available uh for iphone you can download it through the apple uh, app store uh, and we have an Android app coming pretty soon. Uh, you'll get news push alerts right to your phone. It's a great way to get news real quick as it's happening. Um, so yeah, that's that's what it, that's been keeping me busy for basically the past two weeks now. Cranking out some great information. Of course, we share most of the stuff you guys are, are dishing out to the public over here on the show. And uh, love that you're part of the family now. So great to see that, Will. And uh, congratulations. Thank you. Well. Donald Trump rocked a couple events in in South Carolina and Alabama over the weekend. I know you were probably watching, at least on social media, checking out all the things that he was saying and the large amounts of people that continue to show up at these things, much to the mainstream media's dismay. They continue to try to delegitimize essentially his life, uh, not just his candidacy anymore, because they're they're looking to, you know, throw him in jail for the rest of eternity. And, you know, when when you see Donald Trump keeping everything up in stride, I mean, I talked to two people that were on the team traveling with Donald Trump this weekend, and they were both so exhausted, in good spirits, but exhausted. And they're like, dude, this guy just keeps going and going. He does not stop. And then they're on to New Hampshire today, as Caroline Levin opened the show with. And uh, if anything relevant comes in during that portion of President Trump's speech, we'll hit it on the back end of the show, so don't worry about that. But seeing these events uh, unfold, and the policy platforms, the way he's hitting some of his opponents now, depending on where he is or what the polls are showing, what do you think, Will, as far as the president's campaign is going right now? I mean, I, I, I think it's going amazing. Uh, it's it's a testament to the president himself. It's a testament to his campaign team. Uh, Chris Lasavita is, is helping run this thing, is, is doing a fantastic job. Uh, Liz Harrington and 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 Steve Chung and, and Carolyn Levitt and these guys are all like, they're firing on all cylinders. The president seems to have endless amounts of energy. I remember the other day when he was arraigned down in D.C. for the January 6th indictment. And next thing you know, he travels back to Bedminster and then he crashes a wedding and he's sitting there talking to everybody and dancing. And I was like that. I, I couldn't have done that. No, no, he actually actually jumped behind the DJ booth at some point in that wedding as well, which is normal for him. He's, he's got to make sure that the, the correct songs are playing at whosever wedding it is. But no, you outed all my contacts. I mean, I was talking with Chong and La Vida over the weekend. La Vida was exhausted. He's going to be coming here uh, into Steak for Breakfast to do a piece with us very soon. And, uh, you know, Liz Harrington was on the show on Friday. She kind of teased the events and then, you know, obviously hit hard as only Liz Harrington can do on all of the legal stuff that was going on with president trump so let's jump into these uh you know a little bit of coverage from the events that happened in alabama and south carolina over the weekend Uh, i'm going to start off with a piece from you know right before donald trump took the stage america first senator trump endorsed part of the re-election team tommy tuberville uh who's been an absolute godsend in the senate you know a lot of people give credit to the work that jd vance has done 
Deservedly so, but I think a lot of people, uh, you know, sometimes forget about how hard Tommy Tuberville is working to push up against essentially the administrative state in Washington, D.C. He's still holding the line on refusing to confirm, uh, you know, picks for Joe Biden for the Joint Chiefs because of essentially pay-for-play abortions. You know, if you have an abortion in the military, the DOD is going to pay to fly you anywhere in the continental United States to have an abortion of your choice at the clinic of your choice and, and pick up the tab at the expense of the American taxpayer. Tommy Tuberville, who is... Uh, staunch advocate for the pro-life community has said that is absolutely not going to be a stipulation or or something that happens in this united states military and until it's reworked and changed i will not vote to confirm anybody so let's jump in real quick with some audio and hear from him folks they're not after him they're after you they're after our country our country is in trouble i've been up there two and a half years and i've never been embarrassed as much as i've ever seen things that have changed Yes, we have Republicans and we have Democrats, but it is much about Americans versus anti-Americans. People that do not like this country. They like living here, but they don't like the way it is. They want to change our Constitution. They want to change our Bill of Rights. We're not going to allow that to happen. It's embarrassing to watch it go on. They've ruined our borders. They've created crime. They've infiltrated our DA and our prosecutors. They've done everything they possibly can to bring this country to its knees. Inflation. And how about this? I'm a football coach. You can't run a country without fossil fuels. You can't do it. You cannot do it. It's impossible. They're trying to make this country crash and burn. I thought he was going to say you can't run like 30 dive without fossil fuels, but I like where he was going with it. I mean, uh, Will, you, you've seen the job that the, the senator has done over the course of you know the last two years. He was obviously the right choice. I, I thought it was great that he he was one of the earliest people to endorse President Trump in 2020 for his reelection campaign as well. I believe he worked on the reelection delegation committee as well uh, back then. But but he's he's really caught fire. I mean, th- there are very few people in the Senate right now who are working on the pillars that they campaigned on, and Tommy Tuberville is one of them. Oh, 100 percent. I, I don't know if you just saw this, but he <clears throat> literally just, I think, like an hour or so ago, Nikki Haley was attacking him <clears throat> on social media for holding up the the promotions of what it was like 300 and some. Yep. Including two of the uh, joint chiefs. Yeah, including two of the joint chiefs. Like and and again, like he, he what Tuberville is trying to do here is say that, you know, the, the federal government has no business sort of funding a, a pay to go abortion scheme that they're, that they're trying to do with the, with the Pentagon. And, you know, what, what he's doing is, is a hundred percent right. Uh, he's, he's morally correct here. And it's, it's absolutely shameful and despicable that, that Haley's out there attacking him for it. Yeah, I think that was kind of her knockback because, as we'll hear in a little bit, when Donald Trump got into his usual campaign uh, speech portion of it where he was knocking Ron DeSantis, he threw a little jab at Nikki Haley for, you know, even though she's running, uh, you know, suggesting that she should show up at events like that. So we'll listen to that in, in just a bit, but I do want to get into some of the uh, policy-driven portions of President Trump's speeches. This one's from South Carolina. He was hitting Joe Biden hard on Bidenomics. Let's check it out. One of the most important issues of the campaign will be who can rescue our country from the burning wreckage of Bidenomics. You know what that stands for, right? Henceforth, it'll be defined as inflation, taxation, submission, and failure. 
Under my leadership, we built the greatest economy in the history of the world. We actually built the greatest economy in the history of the world. And you were a big beneficiary in South Carolina. In fact, we did it twice. And when I get back in the Oval Office, and I always say we because we're getting back. It's not me, it's we. But we will do it once again, and it'll be bigger and better and stronger than ever before. With all of the things you're watching, and it's horrible. I looked at New York City last night with what's going on there. I look at Chicago. I look at all of these different places, all run by Democrats, by the way. Not Henry, all run by Democrats. Henry, you must go crazy when you see the incompetence and, and the stupidity, the stupidity. But all run by Democrats. But day one, the Biden economic bust will be replaced with the historic Trump economic boom. We're going to have a boom like beyond what we had. He also has talked about over the course of the last few days, he'll probably drop some of that in his New Hampshire piece today, that he's looking to deliver again some of the biggest tax cuts, if not ever, in, in the history of our country in the course of the second Trump administration. Uh, Will, Bidenomics, I don't know what direction that they're trying to you know, appeal to the American public with. I'll just give an example, and this could be 100% first world white people problems, but I went to the grocery store yesterday, and the one thing that stuck out for me is my kids are very particular on, like, the way I make their school lunches, whether it's the corners cut off, cut down the middle or sideways. But they've always been, like, on it. Ever since they were little, they like this one brand of bread. And a couple years ago, it was, like, two ninety nine for a loaf. I went yesterday, and I looked at – I stood in front of, like, the label seven forty nine for one loaf of bread. One loaf yep. of white bread. And I was just, like – Obviously, I have $300 or $400 worth of food in my cart because, you know, we're a family of four, three dogs, and we got to eat the whole week, busy, school lunches and stuff. But I'm just sitting there looking at this, and I'm like, this is the crown jewel of my shopping experience on just how bad this Biden economy is. And, you know, when, when you look at what they're trying to push in the American public, you know, we'll hear from Nancy Pelosi later who says, like, investigating Joe Biden is just to kind of take away from the great job he's doing with jobs in the economy. I was like almost fell off of my chair this weekend when I heard that in real time. What do you think? I mean, yeah, we, we saw this with the BLS data that came out here last week, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics data that, one, job growth is slowing in the country. We've had a, a year-long plateau in labor force, particip in labor force participation rate. Uh, that's actually still below the pre-pandemic level. Um, you know, the Fed is still very concerned about inflation. You see a lot of news stories saying that inflation's at 3%. That's not true. Uh, the Fed looks at core CPI, um, among a few other indicators, and core CPI is still up over 4%, uh, well above the Fed's target rate. So we may even see another rate hike before the end of the year. There's still some rumblings of that in D.C. Um, you know, we, we saw with with the Fitch, uh, Fitch ratings downgrading U.S. debt from AAA to AA+. Plus. That's big. Uh, in that report, they even predicted a recession by the end of the year into early next year. Like the the administration doubling down on Bidenomics and desperately trying to sort of spin this thing into some type of positive, uh, it's it's sort of mind boggling when you're starting to see a lot of cracks out there. You know, home, the 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 uh, home values are still way up. Um, it's nearly impossible to own a home. You're starting to see a credit crunch come underway. Uh, you know, there's predictions that we're going to see commercial real estate collapse by upwards of 40 percent here over the fall. Like the economic headwinds are really starting to build up. And I'm kind of like, ah, man, if I were if I were a comms guy in this White House, 
I'd, I'd, I'd probably be, you know, thinking of jumping ship rather soon. I know. I was just going to say, I'd be probably standing in, uh, in the window on the floor under you telling you to get back from the ledge. Yeah. 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 You'd definitely be talking me down off a roof. <laughs> we, we, t- we talk about that when we compare, uh, Corinne Jean Pierre's, you know, white house press pool, uh, pieces, you know, well, they only do them like once a week now, but they used to be daily. And I'm like, does she just stand in front of a mirror and like slap herself a couple times and be like, okay, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And then she looks down at her note cards and just starts crying because the stuff that they're telling, I mean, obviously she says they're all transparent and historic, but at the same time, the bullet points in between those, you know, catchphrases are terrible for the American people. Yes. Yeah. And you know, she, I, I don't envy the White House press secretaries. That job is awful. I mean, it hands them out to like, it's, 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 you, you have to be like a masochist to actually want to do it. Like it's, it's torture. Uh, but she's especially bad at it. <laughs> like Jen Psaki, say what you will about her. She was actually a fairly like competent White House press secretary. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was absolutely tremendous. She's one of my favorite White House press secretaries. Sure was. Yeah, no, uh, she was really got the balance between humor and combativeness and just how to engage with the press. Uh, but but Jean-Pierre is just it's not, it's not pretty. Yeah, she is. Uh, she's a special person here on State yes. for Breakfast. And uh, we really appreciate the both historic and transparent job that she's been doing up there at the White House press pool. I want to remind everybody today who's listening to the show, whether it's for the first time or you're a longtime Steak for Breakfast listener, hope you're enjoying it. Find us across every downloadable podcasting platform, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google, uh, iHeartRadio, and Podbean. Subscribe to the show, rate it, leave a review, please. Very important to help us out in the algorithms, get us in the suggestions so more people are hearing the great work we're doing here on the show. Also across social media, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Find the Steak for Breakfast accounts. Hit the notification bell after you follow us. I want to remind everybody also at the end of this segment, we're going to be sitting down with Newsweek opinion editor at large, great friend of the show, Mr. Josh Hammer. Probably won't be too thrilled on the uh, recent developments going over at the DeSantis camp over the last 24 hours, but we'll talk about it like we always do with Josh. He's a great sport, and uh, you know we look forward to having him on anytime he can contribute to the show. All right, sticking in the... Um, Speaking events here, we're going to keep it in South Carolina. Polls came out that, you know, there were some out today that we'll talk about in our presidential primary roundup segment that are showing Donald Trump having some really favorable numbers, not just within the Republican GOP primary, which is essentially over, but for the last now four weeks in a row in the general election. Let's hear him uh, talk about that and how bad he's hitting Joe Biden on it. They tariff us. If we sell something into China, they tariff the hell out of us, right? So they say, uh, no, no, we don't care about it. We don't care because they're smart, you know, just like the, the Democrats, what they go, misinformation, disinformation. That's what they are. They're a party of disinformation. We want to run against Trump. Well, if they did, they wouldn't have every DA in the nation. They wouldn't have all these people. If they want to run against Trump, they'd say, please, come on, step up to the plate. Oh. And by the way, virtually every poll, we're kicking Biden's ass. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't, we wouldn't be under investigation by deranged Jack Smith. He's a deranged human being. You take a look at that face, you say, that guy is a sick man. There's something wrong with him. I withdrew. Somebody said, why don't you be nice to him? I said, yeah, wouldn't matter. Wouldn't matter. This guy's a maniac. They gave me a maniac. They gave him the nicest man in the world. You know the boxes hooks, right? The boxes hook. This guy's got 1,850 boxes, Lindsay. 
He's got boxes in Chinatown. He's got boxes in his garage by the Corvette, where the house is run by Hunter. I wonder what happened with those boxes. And he's got boxes at Penn all over the place. Well, you've seen these polls come out. I mean, new ones from Arizona today, which a lot of people suggested over the last two election cycles was now completely purple and no longer in Republican control. Shows Donald Trump winning the primary by, you know, astronomical numbers against the rest of the GOP field and then handily beating Joe Biden. What do you think about, you know, seeing these numbers come out, especially places like polls that are definitely not uh, conservative or Republican friendly showing Joe Biden and Donald Trump either tied and head to head like the New York Times has had him for the last couple of weeks or some of the other ones where it shows Donald Trump leading as many from four to seven points. Yeah, I mean, and this is something I've been harping on for a while is that at the end of the day, what, what Donald Trump has that, that no other candidate really has is both an incredible skill at retail politics and a winning message. The American first agenda is something that, that sells to voters. Voters love it. They believe in it. Um, you know, going and and focusing on these kitchen table issues that are actually important to voters that both parties have ignored for quite some time, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, issues of trade, supply chains, reshoring jobs, um, you know, rebuilding America's manufacturing core, uh, protecting American jobs like these are things uh, reducing um, you know, ending illegal immigration and reducing, you know, the the abuse of the U.S. immigration system by American corporations uh, who want to you know bring over a bunch of H-1B visas and replace American workers so they can pay them less. Uh, we see this a lot in the tech industry. Like these are all things. And you're seeing this in, 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 in uh, you know, Trump's uh, campaign speeches is he's hitting on all of these issues. And he ate and he's he's every place he goes. He brings these things up and it resonates with voters. Um, and at the end of the day, I think people look back and realize that, that the economy was better and that the country was heading in a better direction when he was president than when Joe Biden's been president. You mean having uh, Chinese and, and Russian Warcraft parked off the coast of Alaska isn't good? <laughs> no, that's 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 not an ideal situation. <laughs> but, but Secretary Austin said it's not a big deal. They're just doing training exercises. It's OK. Yeah. They're just hanging out, you know, this just waving, checking, checking out the uh, the uh, what is it, the Aleutian Islands, there you, you know, <laughs> you, you couldn't have. <laughs> listen, if you just took like 10 second news clips of all the stuff that happens on a regular basis here and played it like 20 years ago, any single person who worked in politics would have thought we all would have died in a nuclear holocaust because it was like so many red lines have been crossed, whether it's like the fourth international embassy that we're abandoning across the world or the way, you know, if you told somebody, oh, yeah, in the last two years, 10 million people have crossed the border. And guess what? Like at least three million of them. We have no idea who they were. We didn't even see them. And they're living in the United States somewhere or, or just the economy like this economy makes, uh, you know, Carter's economy look like it was robust, to say the least. And, and we are just not, you know, living in a time where you can just walk out of your house and be like, oh, yeah, this is completely fine. Like, I think that 35 to 40 percent of vote blue, no matter who, is going to be dramatically less in this upcoming election cycle than it has been in the last couple of years. And the, and the reason is, honestly, they did it to themselves. They tried to play all their hands at once instead of being a little bit more systematically about it. And I think that goes from everything from policy and social issues all the way up to these indictments. You could have really done like a really good case against something that you wanted to build against Donald Trump, whether it was correct or legitimate or not. 
and turned it into an absolute circus, but instead they just do an absolute dumpster fire and try to do, like, all these indictments at the same time. A lot of these prosecutors, like, you know, Fanny Davis and Alvin Bragg, just aren't the caliber of people that are going to go after, like, a former president and, at the end of the day, put them in prison. And regardless of uh, how much they want to hype up people like Jack Smith in the mainstream media, his track record, especially in the Supreme Court, says the exact opposite. So I think this is going to be a case of the Democrats are going to get what they deserved. Staying on the topic of indictments, Donald Trump, of course, was hitting on them during his campaign speeches throughout the weekend. Let's check this one out. Biden by a lot. So a lot of incredible numbers are coming along. We have a primary season with crooked Joe Biden as a weaponized and Horrible, horrible law enforcement group that are just, it's sick what's going on. Have you ever seen anything like what's going on? I mean, I never heard the word indictment. Then all of a sudden, over a period of a couple of weeks, you get four indictments. They do this to try and win an election. Nobody ever thought it was possible. It's done in third world countries. It's not done in this country. And as Henry said, those indictments aren't worth the paper they're written on. They're not worth, they took away free speech. I mean, in one case, you have the Presidential Records Act. I'm allowed to do whatever. You, you got to read it. I read it to people. As soon as you read it, they say, oh, I have no idea. They didn't know that. But in the other case, it's free speech. This means that we cannot ever criticize or look after election. Once that happens, you have tyranny. We can't look at elections. We cannot criticize. Well, Hillary Clinton criticized, and all of these, Stacey Abrams still hasn't conceded. I mean, all of these people <laughs> criticize. I mean, you would have half of Congress right now in jail. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. He is criticizing the election. And let me tell you, there's a lot to criticize, which you'll find out over the coming weeks. It's kind of a tell there into the, uh, you know, legal angle. His team, as we're going to hear in our next new segment, is taken. We saw John Lauro out over the weekend absolutely smashing every single, you know, weak need contributor on any network that wanted to kind of challenge Donald Trump's First Amendment, uh, you know, the constitutional basis for his argument. And uh, it's true, though. It's like we were just talking about, Will. These indictments and how they're just kind of throwing them out there. We know the one from Fannie Davis down in Georgia will now probably hit before the end of next week. Uh, You know, Donald Trump himself has all but confirmed that because he started hitting her, waiting for her nickname to come out. And, uh, you know, we, we've entered a time where this is the way it is. I mean, people use those cliche terms like banana republic or third world country, even the president does. But but when you look at some of the stuff that's going on in like South Africa and Niger, historically in places like Somalia, and then even in like Brazil, which is more of a modernized country. And, and up until this point, well, they're, they're moving swiftly towards communism now. So they're cuddling up with the Biden regime. But, you know, in the last administration, they were they, you know, had done a lot of great stuff with the United States. It's very worrisome to see that, you know, so many people who didn't have anything to do with, let's just say, for instance, January 6th, didn't enter the Capitol, might not even have been in Washington, D.C., are receiving jail time right now. Yeah. Oh, it's it's deeply concerning. And, and, and this idea that you know, the DOJ and Jack Smith are trying to peddle, especially around with the January 6th indictment, it, not being able to criticize or question an election in the United States is, is ridiculous. Like... We we have had a history in this country of controversial elections with people yelling and screaming about them, challenging the results, 
And, and, and sometimes they were corrupt elections. You, I mean, Tammany Hall in New York was basically an enterprise that was rigging New York elections for decades. Um, you know, you've, you've had elections get thrown to the House before in the past. Like, the, the Democrats have a long track record of challenging presidential elections whenever Republicans win. Uh, you know, it happened in 2004. It happened in 2016. It happened in 2000. Um, you know, th- this is something that, it's it's part of it's part of the american political norms it's not something that that should be illegal or is illegal yeah and it's uh you know something that affects a lot more people than just donald trump as you know we'll hear a little bit later in the show brandon sarka is going to be here today for the first time it's going to be great uh talking with him you know he's kind of gone through the absolute shit to get to where he's at right now which is like just getting back to a little bit of normalcy in his life and so many other people. Uh, and, and I think the premise that Donald Trump tries to set up with these talking points, although some of them might be funny when you talk about nicknames or, you know, how he talks about Bidenomics is just like, I think he called it like the burning heap of the Biden economy. And my, you know, I was cutting show clips last night and my wife was in the kitchen and she heard it and she's like, that can't be written into his speech. And I said, no, that's what he does. He goes off script a little bit. He gives things a nickname. And she's yeah. like, man, all of these people that write speeches for him, they, they write like these amazing speeches that he like goes and calls people like all these, you know, ridiculous nicknames and stuff. Like I said, that's just the way he is. It, it's what makes Trump speeches and, and speaking events just such. But he did put out a call in his Alabama uh, dinner for Republicans up in Washington, D.C., and one's running in the elections right now, they need to get tough. Let's check it out. So I'd talk as a politician would talk about somebody, but I never hit him this hard. But when they indicted their political opponent and they did that, I said, now that gloves are off, he is a crooked, incompetent thief. And he shouldn't be allowed to be the president. And the Republicans better get tough and they better get smart because most of them look like a bunch of weak jerks right now. And you got to get tough and smart and you have to fight fire with fire. You can't allow this to go on. So I spoke much differently prior to that happening. And when it actually first happened, I said, no, I don't believe that. That can't be, especially these bogus charges, Presidential Records Act. I come under the Presidential Records Act and then challenging an election. I mean, if you challenge an election, Hillary Clinton has been challenging, even though at three o'clock in the morning she said, you won. But then she went back to challenging it to this day. Stacey Abrams challenges it. Many... Many congressmen have challenged it over the years. Many senators have challenged it. Uh, If you take a look at the West Coast, Hollywood has challenged it. But I think most of them voted for Trump. You know, a lot of them will say, this Trump, this Trump. And then they say, you know, if I vote for him, I'm going to pay about one-third the taxes. I think I'm going to vote for Trump. But let's not talk about it. We did actually very well in Beverly Hills. And that's exactly what I think my wife was pointing to, those little jabs right there that he takes at people that he knows are going to trigger them. But the thing is, it's it's the truth. And at the very beginning of that clip, he was referencing the Mar-a-Lago raid, which turned into the documents indictment and now where he's at now. And 
you know, he praises people like Jamie Comer and Jim Jordan, obviously people like Matt Gates and Byron Donalds, Elise Stefanik. You can't say enough for the House members and the senators that are out there openly talking about the weaponization of the government, holding committees, getting hearings, closed doors, depositions. But the fact of the matter is we're just not doing enough. I've seen Kevin McCarthy act stern-ish in the press lately, but, I mean, we all know his word is about as good as as far as you can throw him, and it's not worth very much. So whether or not we're, we're going to continue to move down the path of at least impeaching inquiry for Joe Biden, that's neither here nor there. I don't really think he any, does anything to the cause. It, 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 in my opinion, it only negatively affects the election cycle because it flips the entire script. Let's just say at the end of the day they do find stuff on Joe Biden and are able to indict him and then impeach him. I mean, you're, you're talking about then inserting an entire new uh, brand into the election cycle, which obviously the Trump team would have to prepare for. I'm sure they're already you know, looking at logistics of people like Gavin Newsom running on a ticket with like Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar, maybe even Gretchen Whitmer. But the fact of the matter is, is that things change when you take out like weekend at Bernie's and insert someone that can actually counterpoint speaking, you know, uh, debate points that you're trying to hit him with. So that was kind of the president's weekend that was. We're still tracking to see if he's going to take the stage soon in New Hampshire. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that. We're about to sit down with uh, Newsweek opinion editor at large, Josh Hammer. But before we do, let's hear from one of our sponsors. This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Rubs, barbecue tools, blow torches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear for you to make barbecue great again. can be found at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs. Use the code STEAK15 for 15% off your order. All right, joining us next on the show today, he's the senior editor-at-large at Newsweek. He does some great work there. He's also the host of the Josh Hammer Show. Always happy to sit down with Mr. Josh Hammer. Josh, thanks for joining us on the show today. You bet, guys. Always a pleasure. Well... Lots of news to talk about. Listen, I like to highlight your work, the Josh Hammer podcast. Love it. New intro, new cover picture. You guys got to follow it, subscribe to it. Really great commentary on there. Some very impactful guests. I listened to your second to last one. I, I only finished half of today's on the way over to the studio today, but your second to last one kind of broke down the latest Trump indictment. That's the stuff related to January 6th. I think if you give our listenership kind of some footnotes on what you put into that podcast, it would really be detrimental because we're getting ready to talk about, you know, Donald Trump's legal battles and how they're raging on with the media kind of looking the other way and all the stuff happening with Joe Biden uh, in our next segment. Yeah, you bet. So the latest indictment from from Jack Smith is a sham. I mean, it's it's nothing less than that. It is it is a pure sham. And, you know, look, I mean, I, I have taken each indictment case by case. The Alvin Bragg thing was a grossly politicized legal persecution. I mean, there's not enough bad words that you can say about what, what that indictment was. By contrast, I thought the classified documents indictment definitely had some some flaws and there were some things in there that were highly arguable or debatable, namely the use of the Espionage Act, which yep. is this kind of controversial World War One era statute. But th that was a fairly serious theory of the case. There were serious factual allegations alleged. I, I say all that just to say that I've been taking each one case by case. This latest one is just a joke. I, I mean, I, unfortunately, it's not a joke because there's there's sentencing, there's real jail time potentially in the offing there. So I, I shouldn't say it's a joke, but legally speaking, it really is a joke. And what they're trying to do here is they're taking a massively broad view of criminal conspiracy law. They're taking a massively broad view of fraud. But as every first year law student learns, you know, in order to have a criminal conspiracy, you have to be conspiring to to do something, to actually commit a crime. And 
Jack Smith's basic theory of the case is that the crime that the conspiracy here, which Trump was the kind of orchestrator of, he was pulling the strings to with his White House, his DOJ out in Arizona, Michigan, the whole thing. The theory is that the the crime was a deprivation of of constitutional rights. The, the whole thing is just ridiculously dubious. You know, you, first of all, his subjective intent, because Jack Smith is relying a lot on the allegation that Trump actually deep down knew that he had lost because various lawyers told him he lost. Therefore, he he, he was lying. You know, lying is not a crime. I mean, with some exceptions, the Stolen Valor Act was an Obama era statute. There are some things that you actually cannot say. But generally speaking, you are allowed to lie and not be sent off to a jail cell. But furthermore, you are also allowed to contest elections. I mean, the Democrats have contested elections each and every time that they have lost in this century. In 2000, in Florida, 2004, in Ohio, and even 2016, after the Democrats said that Russia allegedly stole the election, many tried to challenge the results in various states when it comes to competing slates of electors. Folks like I think Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, I think, was involved in some of those challenges in 2016. So all of this is frankly just utterly ridiculous. Um, and, and the most damning to me of all, to be honest with you, as as a lawyer, is when we get to John Eastman and, and, and that whole element of it as well. But whether it's th- this infringement on free speech that he wasn't allowed to say certain things, this ridiculous kind of inquiry into his subjective mindset, all of it is just totally nonsensical. And I'm glad that you bring that legal aspect to it, Josh, as someone who's a student of the law, because, you know, there's a lot of people who are hearing things like, you know, John Laurel did the entire uh, Sunday morning news circuit. He's been doing a lot of the cable news at night talking about how this is a First Amendment interpretation case and in their opinion, which it is. But, you know, there's a lot of people who don't understand, like, what does that mean? And essentially the way we've been kind of talking about it on the show is, is that Jack Smith and the special counsel, the Department of Justice is kind of alleging Donald Trump with, you know, just kind of laying it out there. There were there were two opinions formulated on what happened after the 2020 presidential election. Donald Trump chose the wrong people and then formulated his opinion incorrectly because he didn't listen to the right people and that in turn just kind of takes the first amendment and throws it directly into the garbage can right so look part of jack smith's case doesn't hold up unless he can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that trump actually knew deep down that he had lost that's basically an impossible thing to prove, though, because it's possible that one day maybe he thought he he lost. It's possible that the next day he thought he won. And Smith's basic way of, of trying to demonstrate this in the indictment, and we'll see, obviously, if it goes to trial, what this looks like before a jury and whatnot. But his basic approach is to invoke a lot of close people to him, lawyers, policy advisors, counsel, and say, oh, they told him this. But – That doesn't matter. I mean, you could have 99 people tell him that the election he actually lost. And you could have one person, Sidney Powell or whatever, come in at the very end. And it doesn't matter, like, whether it's like legal crackpot stuff, whether it's Nicholas Maduro from the grid. None of that really matters. You could have one person from from at the very end and say, no, like you actually won. There was X, Y, Z things. You actually won the election. And if he chooses to subjectively believe the final person and ignore the first 99 then that's it. Then then this then this whole case collapses here. So, you know, I, again, like, is the shoe on the other foot also or or is it not? Are we going to start criminalizing people who try to push for competing slates of electors in the Electoral College or are we not? It's a very dangerous road to go down. Like I said, the Democrats have also been doing that for a very long time as well. So if this is really a precedent that they want to set, then I look forward to the shoe falling on the other foot. Yeah, I, I agree as well. And I know you mentioned John Eastman. We always are tracking his work. We know he's a great friend of President Trump's. He's also a great friend of yours. And, and you know, you, 
he's going to be part of the centerpiece to this because part of the narrative that they're building is he was one of the people who suggested that Donald Trump had an avenue to retain the White House in 2020. Do you want to let our listenership know a little bit about that? Right. So this this was probably above all the single thing about this indictment that riled me up the most, frankly, was so they don't name the co-conspirators. This is on page eight of the PDF, I think it was. I I don't have it in front of me, so I can't quite remember where they where they name co-conspirators one through six. They do not name them. There are a number of reasons why maybe they wouldn't name them. Maybe some of them are cooperating with the feds when it comes to to a plea deal. Try to, I guess, reduce sentencing. Maybe they'll prosecute some of them later on. But it seems like, you know, some of them are Rudy Giuliani, uh, Jeff Clark, who I also know, who I also think is is, is a very good lawyer. And, and John Eastman in particular. I, I've, I've known John for a long time. I mean, I, I was a fellow at the Claremont Institute. I did their legal fellowship, the John Marshall Fellowship, when which John actually led. I mean, he actually led that that fellowship the year that I did it. I, I've considered him a friend for a long time now. I mean, John, and I actually went to the same law school. We both went to the University of Chicago Law School. In fact, when I started there a decade ago. John was one of the ones who I knew was one of the more prominent and famous and illustrious conservative alumni of that particular law school. So I've been following his work for, for, for over a decade. I, I have been thinking that he, that he is a good person there. It's important to understand that what John was doing here was he was representing Donald Trump in his personal capacity, not affiliated with any organization. But, you know, in our in our system of law. A very long time ago, we decided we would have an adversarial system of law where you have two parties who are, are who are trying to fight. They're, they're, they're putting forward different arguments, different interpretations of legal documents. And the obviously the goal ultimately is to get a just outcome. But in that particular adversarial system, you are supposed to represent your client zealously. That's the word that usually gets thrown around in the legal ethics case books. You need you used to have to zealously represent your client and put forward arguments to help your client win the case. That is exactly what John Eastman did here when he made his arguments pertaining to the vice president's duties under the 12th Amendment to the Constitution and what he said was the unconstitutionality of the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Now, legal scholars, legal minds, whoever can agree or disagree with him on those particular arguments. The U.S. Supreme Court disagrees about constitutional law all the time. That, that, that happens basically in every high profile case. But to try to criminalize a competing act of constitutional interpretation, again, this is just an incredibly dangerous road to go down. And it kind of also kind of shines a spotlight and encapsulates, I would say, in a nutshell, the left's transformation from the one-time liberalism of kind of the ACLU and old-school civil liberalism to this modern-day anti-liberalism, this this wokeism, and that's really what you're seeing play out here when it gets to the lawyers. Yeah, it's 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 going to be. Listen, I don't think this is going to be a speedy trial like Jack Smith suggested. I think we're getting into the weeds when you talk about some of the uh, constitutional basis that the special counsel is formulating against ones that are longstanding past practice principles. I mean, everything from interpretations of the First Amendment, formulating opinions and, and how they're viewed. I mean, you just want to talk about the media and, and people up on Capitol Hill that have worked there since the inception of our country. I mean, this country is, has been founded on people telling you lies and whose lies you believe more that usually gets them into office. And, and, and that's just the way it's been, especially how bad it's been, you know, spun out of control since Donald Trump has entered politics. There's always been accusations going back and forth and, and, and you know, between Democrats and Republicans, the whole two-party system. But just the way it's weaponized now, it's like we've never seen before. And 
you know, when people's friends and families are starting to get sucked up into this because America First was such a big, broad movement, and whether you're someone who does, you know, commentary or writes or, or, or worked and served in some context on, on political campaigns or, you know, as part of the Trump administration, it's just the net that they're trying to throw out there and, and as many people and, and their long-standing great works that they're trying to, you know, just delegitimize is, is nothing like I've ever seen before. And I think for as fast as things get whipped in, I don't, I don't think a lot of people, there's still like a shock factor coming down from Donald Trump's arraignment last week, and we haven't had the dust settle all on it yet. I mean, a lot of the mainstream media swept it out of the cycle over the weekend. None of the big print press ran with it, neither did the Sunday morning news circuit. Uh, They just wanted to talk about you know, how Donald Trump is finished forever and push back on his lawyers like John Lauro and, and say that, you know, I, there was a part where Chuck Todd uh, on, on Meet the Press this weekend, Josh, literally said, OK, let's let's not talk about the constitutional basis for it and, and, and talk about something else. And he was literally saying, like, the formulated opinion against Donald Trump is the narrative I'd like to talk to you about. And even though you're a lawyer who's representing this person in this case, I don't want to hear about what the legal premise is or the standing that Donald Trump's eventually going to have on it. Let's talk about my narrative and how how it kind of defeats that because what I say is opinion and, and that's what the people are going to believe. I mean, and that's kind of just kind of, you know, admitting what they privately believe and putting it out there in the open, right? Which is that none of this matters, which is that like the, the, the law doesn't matter. The statutes don't matter. I mean, the basic mindset of the left going back to the 2016 election in particular with the Russia collusion delusion, going back to that, the, the mindset of the left, has been, you know, that Trump is a criminal, that Trump is someone who must be destroyed and and that they will do so by any means necessary. That's how you get the two impeachments. That's how you get the repeated kind of uh, attempts by various people deep in the bowels of the deep state to undermine his agenda. And uh, look, I mean, that does make people, most people on the right, of which I obviously am, that does make you kind of you know, gr- grimace, basically, every time that, that there's some new attempt to to persecute him, um, the, the reason I say all that is because I do think, again, it is important to look at each case on its own merits. I mean, that's what I'm trained to do as a lawyer, and that's sure. what I try to do. That That's why I kind of had those words about the classified documents case, which I do think is the most legally serious of it. But certainly this latest indictment with, with Jack Smith fits very neatly into that broader view of what the left has been trying to do back since 2016 and Russiagate and the impeachments. I mean, it's just it's just nonsense. This is not about the law. It obviously transparently is not about the law. People can disagree as to what they're really trying to get after there at the end of the day. But it is very it is certainly not about a fair and neutral application of the United States criminal code. I'll put it to you that way. Uh, that's a great way to put it now. And, and then when you compare it to the stuff that's going on with Joe Biden, even though that we here on the show feel like the investigations into their international business dealings, the real relationship and, and how strong it was between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, their business associates and how they made money, both as the senator, the vice president, and then as private citizen Joe Biden before he ran and won the presidency back in 2020 quotations around that it's really shocking to see how no one even wants to pay nancy pelosi says investigating joe biden is a distraction from the the robust economy you have people uh democrat strategists going on cable news shows this weekend and saying like if they're going to continue to investigate joe biden and we can't beat donald trump in court we are we've just got to figure out enough way we got to go back to that 2020 playbook and figure out a way to weaponize the election against them how can we be letting what possibly one of the biggest scandals in, in the history of our country uh, in regards to, you know, pay for play just idly float by? Well, uh, I guess the how is because Republicans typically are very bad at politics. And I, you know, I, I say that as someone who wishes that Republicans were better 
at you know taking the low hanging fruit when their enemies, their their domestic foes, give them such obvious low hanging fruit, and then doing something with it. But Republicans way too often are just totally a feed and incompetent at this. I mean, go back to the Obama administration. You know mm. how many scandals going all the way back to the Fast and Furious gun running scandal. You know, back involving Eric Holder. I mean, when was that? It was like 2009, I mean, it was a long time ago. Yep. I mean, you know, what, when have Republicans actually been able to successfully take a Democratic scalp? I mean, you'd have to go back I, maybe to even the to, to Bill Clinton. I, I mean, with Monica Lewinsky, obviously, he ended up surviving that, but at least the impeachment got going there. Right. So it, it, Republicans are just very bad at actually holding their domestic foes accountable here. Having said that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, James Comer has been active. Chuck Grassley over in the Senate, sure, you know, who's, tur- who's, who, who's turning 90 years old in a month. I mean, God bless him. You know, he's been very active when it comes to that, uh, to kind of showing that le- only very lightly redacted now uh, FBI form FD-1023 involving Nikola Zlochevsky of Burisma and the $5 million payments to both Joe and Hunter Biden here. Look, at the end of the day, Congress only has a, a, a limited suite of tools in its tool set. You can defund anything you want, which, by the way, not that it would ever pass the Senate, but I'm not sure why the House has not tried to explicitly defund the office of special counsel Jack Smith yet. That would be one clear and obvious thing that Congress would be well within its power to do using its power of the purse. So you could use your power of the purse. You have the subpoena power. You obviously can pass laws. And ultimately, the granddaddy of all the congressional tools is the impeachment power. And if all the, if all of the other tools fail, if, if, the subpoena, if the subpoenas, the investigations, the power of the purse doesn't fail – then, yeah, I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans are well, well within their rights to file articles of impeachment, if nothing else, to try to make this a campaign issue, because we know that he's not going to get convicted in the Senate, obviously. Oh, I agree. And, uh, you know, they've been bad at politics. They've been weak in, in really pushing these investigations. I think when you talk about Jamie Comer and, like you mentioned, Chuck Grassley, the great job they've been doing, Jim Jordan, and some of the committee work he's done as well, and then some of the outspoken Republicans like Elise Stefanik, uh, Byron Donalds, Matt Gates, who go out and kind of lay it out there for the American public on, on almost a nightly basis on the cable news circuit. We're doing a lot of the right things. I think seeing people like Lindsey Graham and, and Mitch McConnell get booed in recent events in public for long durations of time by unsatisfied, you know, uh, people who, who supposedly keep them in office is a real tell, too, that maybe Republicans will see this stuff more consistently and actually be like, hey, you want to know what? It used to be like Donald Trump says it and we wait to see if that's really the people, if that's how they feel. And now it's like the people actually feel this way. Maybe we really should start going out and representing our constituents a little bit more, which would be kind of a shock to all of us here. All right, Josh, last thing I want to touch with you on real quick, we're going to talk about the GOP and and the overall presidential primary race a little bit later in the show. I know we always touch on it here. There was a little bit of a shakeup at the DeSantis camp today. The campaign manager was uh, switched out. We've got uh, Peck is out and a new one in. How do you see this race kind of shaping up still? There's been some new polls out now. I saw from Arizona, New Hampshire, and uh, some of the swing states over the weekend. 538 was one that came out this weekend as well. Uh, How do you see this race continuing to shape up? And at this point, is it Donald Trump's race to lose? Well, it's obviously Donald Trump's race to lose. I mean, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I'll take that question first. I mean, it's been Donald Trump's race to lose uh, since he announced, frankly, in Mar-a-Lago, I mean, he's the former president. I mean, you know, this is someone who has held the office and none of his challengers have had. He was always going to be the favorite. I mean, I don't necessarily think that many of us thought that on the day that DeSantis ultimately announced that the polling gap would be that big or that it wouldn't move over the course of the first 
you know, two months, two and a half months or so. So, uh, you know, there were many things that some of us maybe didn't expect, but he was always going to be the favorite. So it, it, it is 100 percent his his race to lose. Um, it, it's it's increasingly somewhat difficult to see exactly sometimes what that might look like, short of him being literally carted off to prison. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, which which I guess is something uh, shockingly that could feasibly happen, um, although, you know, the timelines would have to work out there. Look, I mean, at the, uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, it obviously still is early. The first debate is, is is in two weeks. You know, most people really don't start paying attention until the debate. So, you know, the, could the trajectory for Ron DeSantis, could it have been different after his announcement? Obviously. I mean, I think many of us who who were inclined to support him would have liked to see much more movement in the polls and, and all of that. But they still have a, a, a massive super PAC supporting them on the outside. There's still a ton of volunteers knocking doors and whatnot on the ground there. So, look, it, it is early. Things could could certainly change here. Um, but it, if you're trying to, to assess it right now from a horse race perspective, obviously you're very happy if you're Donald Trump and, and you're certainly worried if you're anyone else. It's a good way to look at it, and I think it's kind of a realistic way to look at it. We're also going to have the RNC chairwoman, Ron McDaniel, in here next Friday to preview that first debate. Uh, really excited to be having her on the show. We want to ask her a bunch of different things, maybe about banking your vote. Obviously, the first debate that's coming up, we'll know by then probably Donald Trump's participation level in that and, and how she feels moving forward. Uh, the party looks heading into the general election cycle and, and through the rest of this primary. Josh, it's been awesome sitting down with you on the show today. Always a pleasure to host you. And uh, we want to be able to live link everything in the show description. Obviously, your link at Newsweek, uh, the Josh Hammer podcast, even one of my favorites, your your quadcast that you do with a couple of your friends, uh, NatCon Talk. Love that show as well. Anything else you want us to link? No, that's good, guys. I appreciate it as always. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Josh underscore Hammer. You can find my weekly syndicated column at Newsweek and a bunch of other right of center websites in particular, local newspapers and whatnot. So it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming down. It's always uh, great tracking your work and having a great conversation with the senior editor at large at Newsweek and host of the Josh Hammer Show. Josh, thanks for coming down today. You bet. Chose this day on August 1st from this guy. I've always, what is this purple rope? I don't Have know. Have we figured that out yet? No, it looks like um, the bad guy in Star Wars. It really does. Can someone tweet at us or let us know what is this purple robe that Jack Smith is always wearing? Yeah. And that one picture, I guess. <laughs> that one picture. Hey, Peter. And Dana, there's something else. A, a report of a dinner between President Biden and some of these overseas business partners of Hunter Biden. Here's a big question, though. If President Biden, then Vice President Biden, had dinner with a Burisma executive while he was VP, then why was he trying to make it sound like he didn't know about Burisma until after he left? Nothing was unethical. Here's what the deal. With regard to Ukraine, we had this whole question about whether or not, because he was on the board, I later learned of a Burisma. Uh, he has not explained that, and he has not deconflicted the sworn testimony of a Hunter associate, Devin Archer, who claims it is categorically false that Biden never spoke to his son about overseas business with past Biden claims that he had no awareness at all of his son's overseas business. While he's been on vacation in Delaware, this is all we've got. Will you talk to us on your way back? <laughs> the Oversight Committee chair is saying Joe Biden lied to the American people when he said he had no knowledge about his son's business dealings and was not involved. His son's business dealings actually may turn out now to be too much for at least one House Democrat. 
If Hunter Biden committed crimes, Hunter Biden should face justice uh, and accountability for those crimes, which, by the way, is a sentence that I have heard very few Republicans say about Donald Trump for much more massive crimes. White House aides have scheduled a presidential visit with the Houston Astros today and then some time out west for basically the rest of the week. So we have no idea when President Biden plans to address some of these inconsistencies. Dana? Well, Will, what do you think? If you watched any of the news throughout the weekend and yesterday, outside of Fox News and Newsmax and, and things you're going to hear on places like here on Steak for Breakfast, you're not hearing any of that. You know, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, all the other print press, and then the entire Sunday morning news circuit decided to pretty much dedicate the entirety of their news programs to the questionable premises for the indictments that are up against President Trump and every single pundit they could bring in from, you know, Bill Barr to Mike Pence to kind of demonize the situation and make it seem like Donald Trump's guilty before he even sees the inside of a courtroom. I mean, yeah, you, you, you look at the timing of, of every little bit of sort of drip, drip, drip kind of news when it comes to President Trump. Um, and anytime you have new information come out about Joe or Hunter Biden or both of them and their business dealings. There's suddenly a new indictment or there's a new motion filed or there's some new bit of evidence that Jack Smith's parading out that he didn't share with the defense. <laughs> um, you know, it, it really does seem like the DOJ is timing a lot of this to, to, to counter any type of, of uh, uh, corruption narrative against uh, President Biden, and and you saw there with with uh, you know some of the Democrats starting to supposedly show cracks in their support, but in reality, what they're talking about is is Hunter Biden facing criminal charges, not private citizen Hunter Biden. Yeah, that's a great they point. Will shift this to Hunter Biden and not not say that oh Joe Biden you know was involved with his son's corrupt business practices. Um, so they're they're gonna that's my guess is we're gonna see more and more of that. Of the Democrats going, well, you know, Hunter should face justice for for what he's done, um, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know, what Republicans need to be pushing for, and this is this is the the timing has to be done right on this because we want it to sort of continue on and roll right into the election. Is is a special counsel? Yeah, um, you know, the impeachment vote gets us this nasty partisan fight in the House. We've seen impeachment get flipped on the impeaching party in the past. You know, happened to Republicans under Clinton. Um, I, I, yes, it's the right route to go if there's very serious, um, you know, if we, if we can make a, a very serious case, but in the meantime, I think the appropriate route for Republicans to pursue and push for is a special counsel to begin a long investigation of, of the Biden white house and just to what extent his involvement was with his son and his business dealings. Can't Beyond agree with you more. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And, you know, we've been talking about that on uh, the show the last couple episodes. Let this process play out. Get a special counsel assigned. Let this go through the election cycle. Joe Biden can lose it. And then, you know, the special counsel can make their final, uh, you know, findings on on back to private citizen Joe Biden. And if Hunter yeah. Biden has fair violations and, and didn't pay even more taxes than he's already been, you know, let off for not paying, then let them slap those on uh, after that as well. And instead, Joe Biden goes and, and jet sets on a two-week vacation, which is going to, you know, encompass both coasts. He stopped back at the White House in between trips yesterday to, you know, host the uh, Houston Astros who won the World Series last year. But besides that, 
no legitimate press is even looking into this. Even with the news breaking this morning here on the show, I saw as I was coming in, uh, former Hunter Biden associate Eric Schwerwin, who had allegedly been to the Obama White House when, when Joe Biden was the vice president at least 25 times throughout the course of his vice presidency, it's now almost up to 40 visits. And, and this is someone who is just as connected to Hunter Biden as Devin Archer was, as Bobolinsky probably was as well. And, and again, aside from Fox News just reading this headline over and over and over again, it, it, I don't see it going anywhere outside of just that little tiny orbit that, you know, they're promoting. Lucky for the Trump team, uh, the only person who did make it as far as oppo narrative this weekend into the news cycle was Trump attorney John Lauro. Uh, he appeared on every single one of the shows. The first clip I'm going to play is he was on Fox's Fake News Sunday and pushing back hard on the First Amendment case that they indicted President Trump on last week. Let's hear it. There is is political speech where President Trump is uh, petitioning the government, of course, saying something um, fraudulent in a prospectus or in an accounting statement is not protected or or, you know, robbing a bank is not protected. But all of those examples are ridiculous because the First Amendment protects political speech higher than any other speech. So the reality is that if you're going to if you're going to talk about the law, you have to understand what the First Amendment says and what it stands for. And all of the examples in this indictment are core political speech. Every single thing that President Trump is being prosecuted for involved aspirational asks, asking state legislatures, asking state governors, asking state electoral officials to do the right thing. In fact, even asking Vice President Pence was protected by free speech. None of that is illegal. Okay, quickly. We have the right. Mm. So that's kind of what, uh, you know, they were going back and forth on. And, and that's what it is. This is a First Amendment interpretation case and charges that's being dropped on President Trump. Uh, without knowing anything about the jury that's eventually going to oversee this case, I, I see it as probably loss in court, loss in the D.C. Circuit of Appeal, and then obviously overruled and overturned in the Supreme Court. Because when you look on it, it's like I touched on a little bit earlier in the show. You can't tell somebody not only are they not supposed to formulate their own opinion, but they can't make that decision based off of what other people are telling them. And you can't say that only one of two people telling him is the absolute not only right way, but the way you should have went and you should have known better. I mean, just saying that out loud makes me sound completely retarded. Be honest with you, I, I'm kind of retarded. But we, we just have to look at it and like this is legitimately what they're trying to drop on, on the former president. What do you think, Will? Yeah, it's it's, you know... <laughs> The DC case is it's what we're facing here is and and I'm not I'm not convinced that Jack's this is a slam dunk for Jack Smith, even in DC. Mm-hmm. Um people in DC are weird. The voter pool isn't just going to be a bunch of knuckle dragging, you know, weird Capitol Hill liberals. Like you're gonna have a lot of people from Southeast DC, from other parts of the parts of the city that aren't necessarily working in government or paying that that much attention to um, and, you know, we could be very well into a situation where, you know, if, if Trump's defense team plays this right and they can show that this is, you know, Jack Smith trying to pull off a, another sort of sham prosecution like he did against Bob McDonald, former governor of Virginia, that was vacated by the U.S. Supreme Court. Yep, I know. Um, you, you could end up with, with the jury sitting there and saying, yeah, no, get out of here, Jack. Um, so I, I'm not convinced that this is the, the slam dunk case. That, that a lot of folks on the left seem to think it is. No, I completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, John Laurel would, would 
like I said, he did the entire circuit. He jumped on Meet the Fake yep. Press with Crying Chuck Todd. He was hammering him in a back and forth, uh, pretty much on the same subject as well. Let's hear it. Vice President Pence is an attorney. If he at any point said or thought that, that Mr. Trump, President Trump, was acting unlawfully or contrary to criminal law, he would have said that. No one ever suggested that. Uh, President Trump was you know, exercising Actually, he has right. said that. And by the way, there's another... He said the president asked him to violate the Constitution. No, he's never, he said the president asked him to violate the Constitution, no, which is another way of saying he, he asked him to break said, the law. He never said... No, that's wrong. That's wrong. A, a, a technical violation of the Constitution is not a violation of criminal law. That's just plain wrong. And to say that is contrary to decades of legal statutes. Let's get out well, of let the me, Constitution. Let me say one last thing, if I could. Go ahead. Well, no, because this is a constitutional case. This is this is going to be the most important civil rights constitutional case in decades. And there's one other issue that's very important. Everything that President Trump did was while he was in office as a president. He he is now immune from prosecution for acts that he takes in connection with those uh, policy. So you're going to you're going to try to administration has has not addressed that. An in, interesting uh legal place you're going to go that will also create some constitutional oh. questions well you can't make that up not only yep. was he destroying crying chuck todd so bad that he said okay let's get out of the uh, legal premise of the constitution it's like wait a minute you bring in a lawyer to talk about a constitutional case yep. and then you want to say okay we're only going to talk about my narrative we're, let's talk about opinion of statements and then you battle me back on that and john laurel was like no no, what are we doing? We're going to talk about the legal premise of this case and how it holds up in court. And it's even more wild than that, because I, I, there was an interview, I think it was this morning or yesterday that Mike Pence gave, where he's now backtracking on the the unconstitutional action line. He said um, something of the sorts. It was if, if I had done what the president asked me to do, um, it would have been thrown to the House um, to vote on the delegates and it would have been absolute chaos. So now he's admitting that the actual procedural maneuver was okay, like was legal. You could do it. He just didn't like the idea of it being thrown to the house where it would create chaos. You can't just keep saying it in the press as an opinion of statement, like you so pointed out, Mike Pence's backtracking now will, and then go to court and be like, okay, regardless of what you did on January 6th or not, this is what you've been saying for like the last six months every time you went on television. What do you mean? Like, why did they amend the you know uh electoral college act and, and why was there an instance in 1960 even though a recount would show that it was the correct call but the flippage of delegates from one party to another republicans won hawaii they were awarded to uh democrats in the house uh, to certify the election before there was a recount so if these things really happened and, and just based off of, a, you know, what the president wanted to do legally, it was within his authority to say, I don't think the election was right. And then within your authority to send it down to the House and eventually back to the state electors to kind of work it out, regardless of whatever time that that would have been unprecedented, but it still could have happened. It would have went back to like, what, the 1860s when they had the contingent election in the House. But the yep. fact of the matter is, Mike, you can't just keep saying it over and over again. I think when John Laura was going around and he said it on multiple occasions this weekend that Mike Pence is going to turn out to be the defense's best witness in this case, whether it's on TV or behind closed doors, he's going to have to tell the truth. And he can go and say whatever he wants on Fox News like, you know, I, I, I stood with the Constitution that day and the president was wrong and I, I don't think he should be president. 
Well, it doesn't really sound like you did based off past practice principles, and we want to find out exactly why, because if what you didn't do was part of the trigger that led to the chaos on January 6th, then we're going to have a whole lot wider scope than Donald Trump ever being like an insurrectionist. Or I, I saw somebody talking that he was like, you know, a leader of the Confederate generals. Like, that's what he was acting like now, you know, with this yep. case. And it's just stupid. Speaking of which, uh, everybody's least favorite congressman, at least here on the show, crying Jamie Raskin, he sat down with Chuck Todd to make him feel better as soon as John Lauro got off to talk about this case a little bit uh, on Sunday. Let's hear him. Do you... Uh do you like how Jack Smith did this, or do you wish he had added the insight? No, I think that I understand there were prudential and tactical reasons for mm-hmm. doing what he did, and I think it's excellent because the basic point is the deprivation yeah. of our civil rights. Abraham Lincoln said it best. He said, an insurrection, an attempt to topple an oh, election, is a, an attack on the first principle of government, which is the right of the people to choose their own leader. Do you... Do you uh, do you like how Jack Smith did this, or do you wish he had added the insight? No. What an embarrassing statement, don't you think, Will? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're... It's like the the, the Democrats, they're, they're going down the same route with Jack Smith they went down with, with Bob Mueller, where it's this, like, complete and total infatuation and idolization <laughs> of both these figures who really, at the end of the day, weren't that great at their jobs to begin with. And these people, they, they come out, you know, the, the ones who aren't actual lawyers and the ones who have legitimately just been career politicians, I don't know what Jamie Raskin's backstory is, but he's always been, uh, what is it, very provocative, uh, you know, up, he, he's a pontificator, and he wants to sound like, you know, he's brought himself back into the spotlight, unfortunately, because he's dealing with some cancer stuff right now, whether it be in committee or doing the cable and, and mainstream media news circuit. But the fact of the matter is, is that the stuff he's saying is just, number one, pointless, and number two, it's literally misinformation, because you, you can't look at these things and say that there's any correlation to stuff that happened during the times of the civil war and what happened on January 6th. That's what the media turned it into. Um, you know, we could have just gone out and reported it exactly how it went down. Some of it was peaceful. Some of it was stupid and people that were stupid got in trouble and people that were peaceful got to go on and live their lives. And at the end of the day, the election got certified, whether it was legitimate or not, you know, that was up for them to decide, not me as a, as a pundit, not you as, as a commentator and a journalist will, but, Life goes on, but instead they've tried to turn it into, you know, worse than every 9-11 and, and Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Pearl Harbor, you name it, bad thing, all bombed together, times a million. That's what they continue to, to portray it as, and it's just, you know, completely bad journalism, and it's, it's ruined a lot of lives. And, you know, they, if they weren't pumping out information like that on Sunday, they were bringing on some of the other shining stars in the Democrat Party. I don't know if you saw this one. This was on MSNBC Sunday morning show. She had to put down the Bloody Mary, but Nancy Pelosi wanted to talk about how any investigation into Joe Biden was like a distraction from how great the economy was. And, of course, she wanted to try and dunk on Donald Trump, not thinking that he would hit her back on Truth Social. Let's hear her. On this or that, I saw a scared puppy. He looked very, very, very um, concerned about the fate. Look at that. I didn't see any bravado or confidence or anything like that he knows he knows the truth that he lost the election and now he's got to face the music will how would you like to respond to the former speaker this this coming from a woman that has 
done nothing but enrich herself in her, you know, decades upon decades upon decades in public office, whose husband has enriched himself. Um, you know, there's all kinds of accusations of insider trading um, and, and you know, issues of, of potential corruption here. And then you know, we heard from Jamie Raskin earlier. This is one of the biggest hypocrites in Congress, a man who consistently constantly rails against, quote unquote, gerrymandering mm-hmm. and represents one of the most gerrymandered districts in the country. Like the, <laughs> at the end of the day, I, I I don't know how some of these politicians can go on television and say these things with a straight face. She was probably hammered. Yeah, they, uh, probably or pills or something like it, it, it. I just don't know how you could do it. Like it. It is really astounding that they, they can sit there and accuse somebody else of, of all these crimes when most of them are just as guilty, if not more so. And still doing it. That's the thing. It's like still doing it. No one's still there. They're still lying their pockets and still, you know, denying elections and engaging in, 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 in graft and, and abuse of public office. Mm hmm. No one circles the wagons and toes the line better than the Democrat Party. It wasn't long after that clip started circulating on social media. Donald Trump came out hitting hard on his true social account. This one directed directly at the Pelosi family. I purposely didn't comment on Nancy Pelosi's very weird story concerning her husband, but now I can because she said something about me with glee that was really quite vicious. I saw a scared puppy, she said, as she watched me on television, like millions of others that didn't see that. I wasn't scared. Nevertheless, how a mean thing to say. She is a wicked witch whose husband's journey from hell starts and finishes with her. She is a sick and demented psycho who will someday live in hell. <laughs> Happy Sunday to you, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, it's uh, definitely wild right now. And the amount of ammo that's getting spent volume narratives back and forth to try and distract the public from what is real and what we're actually seeing develop in real time is uh, just wild. It's wild to have to uh, kind of put it together twice a week for the show. I, I know, Will, now that you're doing some great journalism yourself, you, you see it in real time. Anytime I'm sure you start on something, there's either something coming out as you're like getting ready to finish it that adds oh, yeah. to it in real time, or the narrative just switches 90 degrees and you're like, damn it, I missed it. So it's uh, you know that was kind of how the Sunday morning was. We're going to get inside the numbers right now before we play uh, – presidential primary roundup with the people's pundit richard barris but before we do that let's hear from one of our partners i think it's time we had a conversation about a good night's sleep pillow king of minnesota mike lindell and the apparatus known as the my pillow family has been cranking out savings down at my pillow for over 20 years and for the first time in 20 years they've changed the long-standing my pillow and now have the my pillow version 2.0 you enter promo code stake at checkout you're going to get buy one get one free in addition to that, they've got great savings on all things like MyPillow Dog Beds, the Air Lindell version 1 and 2, My Slippers, and Giza Dream Everything. If you're more of a morning person, they've launched My Coffee. It's available in the bean, the bag, and the pod. When you need a promo code stake here, you're going to get 25% off your order or 50% off when you make it a monthly subscription. MyPillow.com forward slash stake for anything sleep related. If you want the coffee, MyStore.com forward slash stake, or you can always talk to a qualified pillow representative, 1-800-658-8045. All right, joining us next on the show today, he's the director at Big Data Poll. He's also the host of Inside the Numbers. He is the People's Pundit. Joining us again, really happy to sit down with Richard Barris. Rich, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. 
Well, I'm not going to call you a prophet. I'm just going to call you really good at the job that you do. I've seen a lot of the polls that came out over the weekend, battleground states, swing states, rust belt states, uh, first five primary states. And it looks like a lot of the numbers that everyone from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal all the way down to 538 is pumping out now. Weeks later, the same information that you were pumping out anywhere from two weeks to a month ago. Do you want to let our listenership know a little bit about getting inside the numbers on some of these most recent polls that have come out about the 2024 GOP primary and the head-to-head presidential race? Yeah, you know, thank you for, uh, for, for noting that because, you know, when you are first, you're the first to take the flack, right? And it's like one of the most thankless jobs in the world because nobody ever comes back and says, oh, look, that guy must have been right. Or, or uh, you know, even I am sorry, I guess Ron DeSantis is going to fall below 20%. You know, I remember when that happened a while, weeks and weeks ago now. But yeah, I, we, we had been, I think we were among the first to start to poll uh, the Rust Belt states in in more detail, both for the primary and the general, and immediately what jumped out at me, and it has been like this uh, for a while now, is that this isn't really much of a race, and we, uh, you know, have kind of moved beyond some of this, and and to ask people, you know, would you even vote if Donald Trump wasn't the nominee? I think that's a big question that needed to be answered this cycle, and now we see it with Suffolk. Uh, the New York Times poll that came out last week is very, very, or a couple of days ago. I mean, it said last week, but it was a couple of days ago. Um, you know, that that's a mirror image uh, of a uh, of what we're seeing. So, you know, it, generally the the primary question is how many of these Trump voters will stay home, and I'll tell you enough of them to make Iowa and Ohio. Ohio competitive again and to put, you know, states like Michigan out of reach uh, for Republicans. So that was their reality before Donald Trump. And I don't know why they expected it to be their reality after Donald Trump. I really don't. You know, for all the flack I take, I think they needed to answer that question before I needed to answer, any, you know, answer for anything else. And, and that's exactly what, you know, the numbers are, are extremely telling when, when you kind of lay it out that way. I just want to reemphasize the fact that when you look at some of these numbers, first five primary states like New Hampshire, the new numbers that have come out recently, you were one of the first people, if not the first person, to actually do a great cameras and, and put out some poll numbers for the Rust Belt states. Extremely important as well. And then when you talk about battleground states, like some of the recent numbers that came out in places like Arizona, they're all kind of reflecting the same thing. They're all showing that this isn't much of a primary. It's actually a coronation, a, a three-peat, if you will, for Donald Trump. And, and, you know, at this point of the race and how important these specific polls are, the only thing we're seeing right now is the, you know, candidate consulting class get rich and the American yeah. people get misled that there's some kind of like primary going on while Donald Trump continues to have to go through that and all of the legal stuff he's incurred lately. Yeah, this is something, you know, it's like I'm a pollster and it's not my job to be pro or 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 against anybody. But the fact of the matter is, it's it's like stunning to me, this cycle, how we're all just supposed to go at it, go along with what is really a grift. If not, we're at risk of being like labeled pro Trump. But the fact of the matter is, this is one of the least competitive uh, nominations in modern memory. Nobody has ever lost a lead this big. And I, I don't feel like we should have to entertain this. And why are we? Why are, Why is the media, especially the mainstream media, entertaining it? All they're doing is making the consulting class richer. You know, we just saw the financials for Never Back Down and the DeSantis campaign. So like the Jeff Rose of the world, they're 30, $35 million richer. Ron DeSantis has lost more than 
half of his support. So uh, why why do we still feel the need to continue to call this something it is not? This isn't much of a horse race at all. And we're just making the people who are really good at losing a lot of money. And one of the things that I'd like to point out to our listenership, if this was going to be a competitive primary, or even, as Donald Trump would put it, a legitimate primary, these people would have came out guns a-blazing, policy platforms. What's the difference between my campaign and America First? Aside from uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, and, and I think that's pretty much it, no one's put out any kind of... It's like the consultants have told them, listen... The primary that we're in isn't the same one that Donald Trump is in. He's running by himself. But if he winds up going to jail or gets found right. some way legally to get taken off the ballot, then it's like a street fight to the end. So why put out any kind of policies that, number one, piss off America first, number two, aren't MAGA, and, and we'll just go out there and say we're going to shut the borders down and end wokeness and stop liberalism and wasteful government spending, and, and that'll just be fine. You want to bring uh, integrity back to the Oval Office and all the other bullshit ways that they kind of frame these sham campaigns that have gone on right now. And Richard, outside of Donald Trump, have you seen anybody operate any kind of legitimate campaign, whether it be someone who like Chris Christie thinks that he's going to 100% just be a bull in a China shop. That's his shtick. Like, okay, we get it. Like, I think his campaign is legitimate in that sense, but he's obviously not a legitimate candidate, if you know what I'm saying. But then people like Ramaswamy or, or maybe even, uh, you know, some of the other people that are out there running right now. Or do you think this is just an absolute clown show? And like you said, you have no idea why it's still going on. Yeah, Vivek is uh, interesting to me, at least he's interesting because I think he's raising issues. He's trying to find a voice, a national voice to talk about issues that he wants to talk about. And I think a lot of them are uh, issues that voters do care about. So he's an interesting case for me. Everybody else is a clown show. I'm sorry. It's just the truth. Mike Pence oh, is God. currently trading below people who aren't even running for president. He was the former vice president of the United States. He is an absolute uh, joke. And I mean, look what happened with his own aide uh, today or late last night, really came out and endorsed Donald Trump. And they don't make men too many men like they do Lieutenant General Kellogg these days. Yep. But I mean, that's a bad blow when your own top aide, you know, for the National Security Council comes out against you and backs Trump. Obviously, if you can't get that kind of support, what makes you think you're going to get voter support? This is somebody who knew you best, who worked with you closely. Uh, and then, you know, the rest of it, let's now if we're the donor class and we're desperately trying to hold on to this idea that we can beat a guy who has forget about a majority. He's north of a majority trying to hit a supermajority at this point. There's no way you can consolidate opposition against him to beat him because once somebody I mean, it's basic arithmetic. I don't know how some of these donors get as rich as they do, brother. I really don't because they're, they're super smart in like asset management, but incredibly dumb when it comes to politics and basic arithmetic. Once somebody is above 50%, you can't consolidate against. So this effort to chase down Glenn Youngkin and get him to commit political suicide is just uh, even if they were to stroke his ego and convince him it's which i don't think they will i think he's too smart for that it's not possible at this point so you're just going to see a bunch of yeah you know, i've said this before and you know i'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings here it's just the truth there is one top tier candidate in this race the rest of them aren't even second or third tier there is a top tier and then there are bottom level candidates you know in 2016 all of these comparisons we've seen people try to make 
they're not legitimate. In 2016, Trump had about a third of the vote uh, when he was really strong, close to 40. But then you would have Cruz or or, or at one point Walker right. and Kasich. They were still in the 20s. You know, I mean, there is nothing like that. You know, th this is not a Trump plus 11 anymore. Trump plus seven. This is Trump plus 40. This is out of the realm of, well, I mean, frankly, you have to be on planet Earth. And if you're thinking this is a uh, comp uh, competing primary, you're, you're not living in reality. It is what you said it is, which is these people and Tim, uh, who is not exactly a Trumper for the bulwark. He put it on his sub stack. He's been following DeSantis around in Iowa. He got it right. This is an attempt to try to hang out as long as you can and become the re the de facto replacement. If somehow they're managed, they manage to take Trump completely off the trail and off the ballot, uh, because th this isn't a race for votes. That 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 race is over. Oh, I think you're right, and and it's the same kind of narrative we've been pushing on the show. It's like the you know the multiverse is so popular right now in the movie theaters, and it's like they're li <laughs> they're literally running one with the rest of the GOP field, yes. and then Donald Trump is like he's running against himself, like going. Well, what are some of the things, you know, one of the questions I want to ask, I think our listenership is always uh, keen to check out. When you do any kind of polling in regards to the presidential debates, I mean, Donald Trump's been doing some, like, straw polling at his speaking events, asking the crowd and stuff like that based off yays and nays. Do people want to see him at these debates? We know Donald Trump has a lot more to lose than gain because people get, like, their campaign video. I don't really think it would matter if people got gotchas because he's always going to come and hit him back, obviously. They'll be able to clip him to use it to whatever they want it for. But the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, I, I think people want to see him in these things. I really don't think yes. it, it's in his best interest. But what are you seeing when, when, when you're asking around? Conventional wisdom is that the front runner shouldn't debate because you don't want to hurt yourself, but people do want to see it. And I think, honestly, a lot of that is coming from they're entertained. Sure. Politics was extremely boring before Donald Trump did things like, you know what, Jeb, you started right over here next to me, and now you're all the way over there. Soon you're going to fall off the stage, you know, or have you looked in the mirror lately? People are entertained by that stuff. So I think they, they want to see it, but I think there is an element, especially to Trump's own support. And they understand the Fox stick at this point. They know that this is like a Murdoch ambush attempt. But I, what I would say is you still give the people what they want. If you're not going to do the Fox debate, then you should call up Tucker Carlson. Sure. I can't sure. see Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and whoever else you want to invite denying or refusing an invitation from Tucker Carlson to do an alternative forum. I think we're all over the old model of debates anyway. It's been an unfair process for a very long time. You know, I mean, if Fox would have set the standards they set early in 2016, the front runner conceivably would not even have, um, you know, qualified to be on the stage because he shot up in such a short amount of time and, you know, met that, those donor requirements in such a very short amount of time. Had they closed the, um, you know, the, the, the door on when you could qualify earlier, then they could have boxed them out of it. I think we all know what they're doing. They even made a kitty stage in 2016. You remember that? Yeah. And I think we all are tired of that. Like who, who do these people think they are that they get to decide who is and isn't, who is and isn't, uh, on the stage. And they would have kept Trump off that stage if they could have in 2016. So I think people are over the Fox ambush Chris Wallace's and Brett Bears and raise your hand for this. And I think they're over that. They just want, you know, are you not entertained? They just want <laughs> a full-throated, 
uh you know a- entertainment block for an hour uh so they don't they don't want to miss out on it but I-, I really don't think he's it's gonna cost him a ton of votes by no. skipping it he skipped iowa if yep. you remember in 2016 and there really isn't evidence that it cost him the caucus there's more evidence that ted cruz and uh jeff rose dirty little trick about ben carson's campaign suspending uh you know and and, and encouraging people to caucus for cruz there's more evidence that cost trump the caucus than there is him skipping the debate but i do think people want to be entertained and he should give it to them he should yeah he should definitely give tucker carlson a call i mean it's like a couple million people will watch the fox news debate if donald trump's not there and then just based off of tucker carlson on twitter's you know first 13 or 14 episodes 50 to 70 (laughs) million views in 24 hours Come on, man. The chief of the chief of the Capitol, former chief of Capitol Hill police, massive interview. Devin Archer, the the small teaser part one video had 30 something million views in a few hours, you know, before I even had a chance to take a look at it. It's incredible. I would definitely have called up Tucker and still time to do it. There's still time to put it together. They could do that quick. I think they're working on stuff behind the scenes to be completely honest with you, too. Richard, last thing I want to touch with you on, you know, we're going to stay in, in, in the thread of the campaigns right here. We just saw another big shakeup down at Ron DeSantis' camp today. You want to talk about someone absolutely throwing their political career in the garbage. Like, you know, it was fun for America First to make fun of that when he first got in the race. But to see it play out in real time, uh, the guy can't go anywhere without being awkward. You know, the donor numbers just came out from Iowa. Absolutely damning. They could try to spin it every which way as possible. But, you know, wait till Ron announces all the way through, like, we're not even to the first debate yet. Those narratives have all fallen through in the bottom, just like the person who was holding the campaign manager spot for him today. And, uh, you know, as someone who tracks this and, and has looked at presidential elections for, you know, such as long time as you have, how do you see, like, does this rank in the biggest catastrophes in the history of modern politics? One of the worst. Months ago, I started to equate this to Scott Walker because polling that race, you know, years ago, Scott Walker looked unique to me. He had appeal in Iowa and New Hampshire. And before Trump came along, I thought this guy could do both. He could win both. And normally that's not how it, how it works out, in the, especially on the Republican side. But then he allowed, you know, the George Will's wife of the yep. world and, and, you know, those cohorts saying a lot of same people around um, DeSantis now. They they also, after Walker was gone, they went around Cruz. Uh, you know, it, it's a Greek tragedy. It really is. I mean, it's it's more like, you know, read the classics, folks. It really is like a Greek tragedy. This guy had everything in the palm of his hand. All he had to do was wait and not let the grift trick him. Not let the grift fool him, play to his, his, uh, you know, the, the, the worst parts of our human nature, our arrogance, our uh, ambition. And unfortunately, he couldn't resist. And, he, and now he's going to pay the price for it. This is now they're trying to say with the removal of Genera, they're trying to say this is really just part of the third shakeup. You know, we've seen big shakeups, McCain, and he came back. This is nothing like this, folks. You do not shake up your campaign every three to six weeks and before, you know, your months before Iowa, and you've already shook up your campaign at least three major times. This is removing your campaign manager is a shakeup in and of itself. You don't have to do anything else. But we were told, and we being the media, two weeks ago when this third shakeup was announced that her job was secure. She wasn't going anywhere. 
She would not be part of the cuts or the shakeup. So that goes to show you again that it's an attempt to spin and downplay how bad this is. They're getting lost. DeSantis is getting, from what I can understand, he's extremely frustrated, uh, borderline paranoia at this point. It really is a full-blown Greek tragedy and upset and, and, and also somewhat nasty to people. He doesn't trust anybody. He won't talk to anyone. They're really closing ranks around yep. him, his wife. And now his chief of staff turned campaign manager. Uh, this is a loser. That that's not a winning. I mean, th- this is not how campaigns reboot and save themselves. This is this is the the end and a refusal to acknowledge it. Yeah, and, and running Ron DeSantis onto like um, you know Megyn Kelly's podcast again, and then uh, having him go and hang out with the guys over at Ruthless. It's not going to be enough at this point to make him no. you know uh, resonate with the American people. They they had the opportunity to do something great down in Florida, c- stemming off of the midterm elections from last year. They decided to go obviously the way you just so greatly outlined. And and, and listen. The mantle of America first undoubtedly won't be passed on to the DeSantis team after this election cycle or, or in ones moving forward. And it's the simple reason of this. You you ran against the greatest political movement in the history of the world, one that had actually receipts from from the first time that Donald Trump held the Oval Office, and and you know you chose poorly. So it, I agree with you. This is like a Greek tragedy. You know, Janera Peck is what she is. She, she was kind of a politically unknown. When you switch up a campaign manager this late in the game, it's not like, okay, it's it, it was just her. We're going to keep doing everything. You're ripping it down all the way to a new blueprint and trying to throw it up. I mean, they have the... That's know, right. The Iowa That's State right. Fair kicks off this weekend. Everybody's going to be there. And what are they rolling out? Like you said, a third, fourth new DeSantis campaign rollout. It's it's kind of just not the way that you do things and definitely not the way you're ever going to win a primary, especially in a place, uh, you know, like with the Iowa caucuses coming up here. Richard, this has been awesome sitting down with you on the podcast today. We always love sharing all the great work you've got going on. We're going to live link the peoplespundant.locals.com in the show description today, as well as a link to Big Data Poll. If anybody's not following you on social media, first of all, what the hell is wrong with you? Secondly, what's your handle on Twitter? At peoples underscore pundit on Twitter. And we're on Getter too, but no underscore. Just at peoples pundit. Best place you just said it is locals. Peoplespundant.locals.com. Best place to follow us. Best place to hear him was here today on Steak for Breakfast. This is the man who takes us inside the numbers. Richard Barris, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. All the best. Thanks for having me. Take care. It's the grace of the individual uh, to take, uh, accept that defeat, to put the country first. But also, they have the, their parties with them. Other leaders, whether it's Democrat or Republican alike, saying, look, it is time. The election's over. It's time to move on. We we all have gone through the example about Nixon and Watergate. But it also means sometimes these presidential elections, at the end of these bitterly contested fights, still even the party said, okay, it's time to turn the page. Even in 2016, by that next morning, the Democrats were doing so. But are you seeing anything here that would suggest that there are other Republicans, real ones that matter, not just the occasional lonely voice? They're going to push the party and Donald Trump to move past this in the next election? Yeah, it's still so hard to accept that. I mean, I thought after January 6th, when you saw McConnell speak, when you saw McCarthy speak, that that was going to be the beginning of the leadership turning against him. And then somehow, somehow it's not happened. And it can't just be a few of them. And we got to figure out when is that going to happen? When is it going to break? And maybe the more this thing becomes clear what was done, You've got to believe that rational thought will come back in the minds of some of these people. But if not, then it's going to take the overwhelming organization, just as you were talking about earlier, organizing the country at all the levels so that he cannot win that election. If the party will will not depart from him, then he has to be defeated and the the party has to be defeated. Fuck you. I hate you.
You know, well, when you hear Doris Kearns Goodwin talk like that on MSNBC, it kind of takes us back to that Time Magazine article, the the basically the plot to steal or secure, just yep. take away the 2020 presidential election from Donald Trump. It's them playing their hand early, obviously letting everybody know exactly what the direction of the uh, you know Democrat Party is going to be. If we can't beat them in court, we're just going to try and, and beat them everywhere, no matter what avenue we take to, to make sure that he doesn't win in 2024. But when you hear them already saying, like, not only is plan A destroying his life not working, plan B using lawfare against him, plan C seeing how he's picking up everywhere in the polls and just kind of walking to the nomination and, and basically intimidates the leadership. You don't, you know, Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, they can go and say that we need to move on from Donald Trump, but they're not out there stumping hardcore to stop anything that he's doing right now. And Kevin McCarthy's playing both sides of the fence like he usually does. But, you know, plan D or E or F is going to be like, all right, we'll just whip out the old blueprint that stopped him from winning the presidency back in uh, 2020. That's social media censorship that's working and collaborating with the teachers union, the big labor unions. Uh, ground game, ballot harvesting, Zuckerbucks, anything that's not illegal yet, we're going to just completely weaponize again and make sure that he can't win next fall. What do you think when you hear them, the strategists already talking in that manner? Well, and we've done a lot of reporting on this, the National Pulse and this idea of the uniparty. Um, and I think that's the most interesting kind of wrinkle here is that the, the Democrats don't have a problem with Republicans per se. They have a problem with Donald Trump yep. because what Donald Trump does and what he's managed to do is he's radically independent. He has taken and sort of brought to life a part of the voting electorate that has felt, you know, sort of left behind in elections uh, and left behind by both parties. And, you know, he, he's got probably 35 to 40 percent of the GOP. Um, so the core part of the base, basically, that's that's you know, willing to go to war for. And that sort of power, that intimidates leadership. That drives them to, you know, the Democrats could wish cast as much as they wanted when McCarthy and McConnell spoke after January 6th and this was the end of Donald Trump. But I think they both came quickly to realize that no matter what they said, the base was still with Trump. And that's a hard thing to overcome for them. So, you know, McCarthy's more so than McConnell is, is playing this smart and realizing that he's, he's got to be able to, willing to play a ball here. But what the Democrats wish is, is to get rid of Donald Trump and have the Republican Party go back to the, the you know, sort of go along, get along opposition party that it used to be. Yep, that's, uh, it, that's, that's what they want. And, and in order to get there, they have to get rid of Donald Trump. No, they certainly do, because, you know, all those the big lobby groups, they just don't have the same effect. And at the end of the day, it's money that controls both parties, uh, you know, the power and influence and everything like that. They just don't hit as hard when Donald Trump's there because, like, he rebuilt the military and, and, and you know, had manufacturing going for military equipment and ammunitions, you know, at record rates when he was the president. But guess what? It wasn't going to kill anybody. It was going in defense deals to places like Saudi Arabia and Turkey and India. And, and people just don't like that. They want, you know, more Ukraines. They're hoping that, you know, either South Africa or Niger uh, collapse even more so we can get boots on the ground there. And Donald Trump just doesn't see how that benefits the American people, the American public, the blue collared, middle class, hardworking family units and, uh, 
it's just a segue that the party's – it's great to see a lot of other people. I know you mentioned Mitch McConnell. He didn't have a great weekend as well. We'll get to him in just a sec. But before we do, we're going to check in on the DeSantis campaign. They had a little shakeup over the weekend, nothing too big. But uh, let's hear how CNN covered an interview that he did with MSNBC. This morning, Florida governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is giving his most direct comments yet against Donald Trump's claims that the 2020 election was stolen from him. DeSantis saying, quote, of course Trump lost in 2020 and that Joe Biden is the president. Omar, I have been covering Governor DeSantis going back to that uh, 2020 election, and I have never heard him say in such forceful terms that Trump lost the election. Yes or no, did Donald Trump lose the 2020 election? Whoever puts their hand on the Bible on January 20th every four years uh, is the winner. Okay, but respectfully, you did not clearly answer that question. And if you can't give a yes or no because on whether or not Trump lost, then how of can course, you... No, of, of course he lost. Uh, uh, Trump lost the 2020 of, election. Of course. Asshole. Mm. There are a few no-goes in America First politics. You can bend the prism and retell the story however you want on how you begged for an endorsement from Donald Trump. You can disagree with him on some policy figures or even hires, even though there's receipts that not only did you vote for all the things that Donald Trump got done in the first you know, term as, as president in the United States, but you gleefully endorsed everyone from you know, James Comey and, and everyone in between. You cannot say that the 2020 presidential election was not rigged and stolen to America first, period. End of story. There is no any different version of that story in any realm of the multiverse that you could tell and still even expect. Like We're at the point right now, Will, where it doesn't matter who Ron DeSantis fired. He fired his, what, campaign manager today as the numbers continue to plummet. And think that anybody who's affiliated with his team is going to be able to come crawling back. I don't care if you're a social media influencer that's out there running interference on and causing all these problems on places like Twitter. I don't care if you're, you know, people that worked in the former Trump administration and decided that you wanted to give Ron DeSantis a try. Or if you were people that worked in the former Trump administration and weren't going to get the job that you wish you had if Donald Trump wins the presidency next year. So you, like, took your ball and went home and went over to the DeSantis camp and has been causing problems for America First ever since. Not only is his campaign essentially all but over, but, but the careers as far as working in America First are pretty much over for a lot of these people who are associated with him, if not all of them. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's been <laughs> a wild not ride. Not signing up with a candidate whose own congressional record is anything but America First. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ron DeSantis, if you go back and look, he voted to protect, to protect federal contractors who engaged in outsourcing. He voted fast track. Barack Obama's authority to approve the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a free trade deal that we've seen countless jobs from the U.S. go to places like Vietnam. Um, you know, th this is a guy who was never aligned with Trump on trade. Um, you know, he voted to, to increase the H-1B visa caps. Like, he's not, he's, he's much more in line with sort of the old GOP than he ever was with America First. So you have these people running over there now trying to repaint, you know, uh, the guy as being an America first candidate. And a lot of them just lit their careers on fire. Mm -hmm. And the, but on top of it all, the campaign has been a complete and utter disaster. You know, we report in the National Pulse about Robert Bigelow, who is yep. the single donor to the to the never back down Ron DeSantis super PAC. Uh, Bigelow, of course, is a UFO enthusiast and uh, a good friend of the late Senator Harry Reid, a Democrat from Nevada, huge donor to him. 
uh bigelow used to own the skinwalker ranch i don't know if you've ever seen that yep. show on the history channel oh yeah oh. Ranch. he used to own that like uh but bigelow basically said unless ron DeSantis becomes much more moderate in his campaign and has another shakeup, he's going to cut off money to never back down and we reported it there first that it looked like Janera Pack, uh, who is um, uh, the, was the campaign manager, was on yep. her way out. And sure enough, today they've they've removed her. They've elevated uh, a lo- uh, his former chief, DeSantis's former chief of staff when he was governor. Um, he still is governor, I guess, but the former chief of staff in the governor's office is now running the campaign. Uh, who's a guy who's got a bit of a shady background as well. Big never Trumper. Uh, so- yeah, and, and and on top of it all, who, who again lacks the sort of national campaign experience that you really need to run a successful presidential campaign. This is the problem they had with Peck. This is the problem they're going to have with the with the new guy. Like I, I sort of suspected they would try to find a way to bring Jeff Rowe over from mm-hmm. Peck. That that move made sense to me. Well, we'll see. There's uh, going to be a sixth or seventh reboot. We'll see if he comes over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll they'll eventually get there. They'll eventually figure it out. <laughs> all, all of those. Uh, listen, at the end of the day, right now, it, it's about consultants getting paid, and it's I guess yep. completely delegitimizing yourself for the rest of eternity as far as America First goes. We're going to talk about that a little bit in just a second. I do want to talk about uh, wherever you're listening to the podcast today, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Podbean, subscribe to the show, rate it, leave a review. Also, social medias, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Find the Steak for Breakfast podcast accounts. Follow us and hit the notification bell. I'm going to remind everybody to wrap up the show today. We're going to be sitting down with Brandon Straka for the first time. Can't wait to talk to him in just a bit. Before we do, let's hear about some other people who didn't have great weekends. Mike Pence continued to push the narrative, even though he's walking it back today about the Constitution. President Trump was wrong. Uh, uh, he was wrong then. He's wrong now. I had no right Uh-oh. to overturn uh, the election. Uh-oh. And uh, uh, more and more Americans are coming up to me every day and recognizing that. And, and uh, for my part, uh, I'm running for president in part Uh-oh. because, uh, frankly, President Trump asked me to put him over the Constitution that day. But I chose the Constitution and uh, I always will. I can tell you one thing, there were no Americans coming up to him at that point because that was Mike Pence reporting live on the ground from Ukraine, uh, which he made a quick stop at last week. And then at a, a Republican event, a big one down in Kentucky this weekend, we're not going to play the full five-and-a-half-minute clip, but we are going to give you guys a little snippet of just how well Mitch McConnell was received. Let's hear him. Now, Will, that that was Brashear supporters who were giving Mitch McConnell a hard time. But the fact of the matter is, when that first came out, I thought it was fake. <laughs> I thought someone had dubbed booze, uh, you know, calls to retire, etc., ditch Mitch, and all the other derogatory comments they were hurling at him his way. What do you think when, listen, we've seen it. Lindsey Graham with President Trump in South Carolina at that huge event in uh, Pickens not too long ago. He was booed for three and a half minutes straight. Miss McConnell spoke there for about 5.30, and it was just the exact same thing. You are getting to the point now where if you – it's not if you're one of these, like, flip-floppers yet. I feel like we'll eventually get to, like, the people who are just moderates. But if you have been adamantly 
either against President Trump or anti-America first policies like Lindsey Graham has a huge advocate of war. Um, you know, he, he was kind of, I don't know, brought in closer to President Trump during his administration. Like we touched on just a bit ago, Donald Trump was manufacturing and, and meeting all of those military contracts at all time high. Yep. So Lindsey Graham was satisfied. Donald Trump's not in office. And of course, he wants to waste all this, you know, munitions we have and send equipment over to Ukraine so we can get those contracts going and all his lobbyist interests are met. But uh, these people are getting booed in public now, sometimes when they're with President Trump. There's, I think we've reached like a point right now to where not only is the public woken up, but it's like, okay, if I don't boo him now, I might never see him again, and we really need to make our voices heard, even if it's to somebody like Donald Trump, and and we're seeing it develop in real time. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really astounding to see that you're, you're sort of a lot of the old mainstays from the Republican Party, the base is really starting to turn against. Um, you know, McConnell being especially sort of, of prevalent in all of this. Um, you know, there's still he he's always maintained this sort of weird level of popularity as a political operator within DC, but outside it, you're seeing more and more of both kind of rank and file Republicans and and you know state and local level Republican leadership get really frustrated with. Uh, McConnell's leadership in the Senate, and I think that you know, with the recent health issues and 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 other other problems going kind of going on, that this is probably, you know, the the last sort of hurrah for McConnell's you know uh, stint in leadership within the Republican Party. And we had some you know polls supporting Donald Trump's candidacy and and rise within the the GOP primary throughout the weekend. Five thirty eight's latest has Trump at, at fifty three, DeSantis at fourteen, Ramaswamy at six, Pence at. Four, Haley three, Scott two, Christie one, and everybody else at, at zero point something percent. And then polls that came out this morning, the ones from Arizona, I thought were kind of eye opening. You know, you see uh, Arizona Republican primary: Donald Trump fifty percent, DeSantis nineteen, Ramaswamy nine, Pence five, Haley four, Scott two, Christie two. Head to head: Trump sixty two, DeSantis thirty eight. And then the general election poll also out today: Donald Trump in Arizona uh, general election. 45-43 over Joe Biden, three-way race, Trump 42, Biden 41, West 4. So it's not like, uh, you know, this narrative that the media continues to propriate that Donald Trump is finished and he looks destroyed and his base is abandoning him. It, it's just the polar opposite, which leads to the question, you know, there's so many, well, Ron DeSantis is already finished for 2028. He's not going to be king-made. And I argue the point that Donald Trump doesn't even need to kingmake for the next election cycle to pass the mantle on to America first. I think it's more of someone else's responsibility to kind of step up and maybe meet Donald Trump in the middle. Because here's what happens. If he wins the presidency, they're going to demonize the entire second term. And then whoever he picks to like kind of take over the mantle of America first, they're going to demonize them for four or eight years moving forward and just say all of these problems we have in the country, regardless if Donald Trump's not in office, it's still his fault because he picked this person. So it's like a two-way street. He's either going to pass the mantle on to somebody and just not care or he's going to say like you know what i did the job that i came to washington dc to do i'm going to walk away america first knows what to do they're going to pick the right person i'll support that and, and we'll see what happens but i don't think glenn youngkin is going to come cuddling up to donald trump at any point in the next couple of years that could change brian kemp and, and donald trump's they're they're you know the way they don't see eye to eye has thawed but it's not like Brian Kemp is going to be cuddling up to Donald Trump either. Ron DeSantis is out. I heard a clip yesterday, and in our last audio clip of the day, before we jump in with Brandon Schrocker, let's hear Joe Rogan just hypothesizing a little bit which way the Republican Party could turn. 
Yeah, I guess you would probably have at least an idea of how you would do it differently and better. And he's also got a very popular voice. Like, if he decided to run for president, like, say if Trump, let's just make a scenario, Trump wins in 2024, he has four years. If Tucker went to run in 2028, he could win. He really could yeah. win, because it would be kind of carrying those policies, but also he's a sort of a no-nonsense guy who exposes mm -hmm. bullshit yeah. in a pretty humorous way, in a very insightful and biting way. And that's what he was really good at on his television show. Yeah. And he red-pilled a lot of left-wing people. There's a lot of left-wing people during the pandemic that's a Tucker Carlson's a propagandist, and he's a mm -hmm. piece of shit, and is a right-wing asshole. And then as time went on, they are like, he's saying a lot of shit that's right like why are they locking these tests why are they making kids wear masks like is there any science to it will what do you think i'm not 100 percent sold on somebody like tucker carlson i think he's definitely had his eyes opened really bigly over the course of the last year especially what happened to him at fox news the way it went down the way he's trying to get back into things now uh you know but tucker carlson is america first i, I think tucker carlson could provide a, kind of a a wrench in the gears of all of these establishment Republicans that just want to see Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin or Brian Kemp become the next president, which just takes us back decades at this point, if they're able to do such in 2028. Uh, I don't know if Tucker Carlson's, you know, biggest interest is getting into politics, because I've heard him on podcasts, they'd be like, why don't you just run for a house seat or senator? And he's just like, no interest, zero interest. Uh, but President of the United States, a little bit of a different game, and, and we know that him and President Trump are friendly. Uh, you know, but just looking down the road a little bit, could you see that as something that's possibly shaping up? Oh, man, I would love it. <laughs> I would love for Tucker to run. I, I, don't, I, I don't think he will, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't see it at uh, this point. He's, his, you know, his father was in politics, was an ambassador to Seychelles. Um, you know, he's been in and around D.C. for most of his life and lived in politics, lived sort of in the political world. Um, and I think he knows kind of what what you put yourself and your family through when you do that. And I think, you know, he's a family man and he's not, I think, all that interested in dragging his wife and kids uh, to hell and back to try to win the White House. So, uh, you know, I, I think unfortunately that probably won't happen. I would love it. It would be, an, I think, an incredible campaign. I think he'd be an incredible president. Um, but you know, I think, I think he's very content to sort of um, be the be a guy on the outside that sure. can add a lot of context to this and, and sort of be involved in that way. Uh, but we've got, you know, I think there's a, a lot of heirs to to the mantle of America First mm -hmm. that, that are along here, um, and, and you've got you know some very solid candidates coming out of the Senate, the House, and um, and some of the governorships as well. Uh, that'll be able to sort of make this push in, in 2028, um, you know, after after Trump uh, hopefully wins election here. Um, and, you know, I think the, whether it's somebody like J.D. Vance or Josh Hawley or, you know, any number of candidates, um, um, you know, at least Stefanik is another one that keeps kind of getting thrown around more and more. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of America first talent. Sure. Uh, no, I completely I think, agree with I you. Think, 
very bright future for it in terms of electoral politics. And, and I think the cream is still rising to the top. We haven't seen the best of America first yet. I think more people are starting to become comfortable with it. And that's led to Donald Trump's not only primary success, but now the numbers, the way they're showing up uh, in, in forecasting the general election next year. Will, this has been awesome sitting down with you today. You know, I could ask very few people to come in here and be our Chewbacca to my hand solo, but you absolutely nailed it. I'm not going to tell Noah that you did such a great job because he is the best engineer in the game, but we want to live link everything you've got going on including the national polls and your social media handles in our show description today so tell our listenership where they can find you yeah yeah so uh everybody should check out the national pulse.com um you can find me on twitter at uh w-u-p-t-o-n uh at wupton um and also be sure to follow the national pulse on twitter and that's at the nat pulse n-a-t-p-u-l-s-e so the nat pulse at twitter you got it, my friend. This is the junior editor at the National Pulse. He worked in the U.S. Treasury Department doing a little public affairs. Great friend of the show. Will Upton, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. All right, guys, we're getting ready to jump in with Brandon Schrocker right now. But before we do that, let's hear from one of our partners. Friends, I want to take a minute and talk to you about cigars. Whether you're on the golf course, fishing on the lake, or doing some yard work around the house, our friend Alan has got you covered. He's launched the Patriot Cigar Company. The tobacco is handpicked in the fields of Nicaragua, right next to where Mike Lindell picks his coffee beans. The cigars are hand-rolled each three years. If you enter promo code STAKE here, you're going to get 15% off your total order. Every order over $100, free shipping, and a $10 e-gift card is included with every purchase. MyPatriotCigars.com, that's MyPatriotCigars.com, a premium smoke for freedom-loving patriots. All right, joining us next on the show today, this big Tuesday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. He's the founder of the official walkaway campaign. Been tracking him for a long time. Glad to finally have him in studio here. Brandon Schrocker, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, sir, I think you'd like to uh, probably start off by catching our listenership up to the latest with you. We know things like the operation that happened in and around January 6th affected a lot of people in a lot of different ways, you more than most. And uh, if you wouldn't mind bringing our listenership up to the absolute latest of what's going on in your neck of the woods, we'd appreciate it here on the show. Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that because um, I think that a lot of people feel like, well, not necessarily people in the center or people on the right, but definitely people on the left feel like I got off easy uh, with January 6th without bothering to realize that I never entered the Capitol on January 6th. I was actually outside of the Capitol for eight minutes on the east side grounds. And uh, nonetheless, I got raided by the FBI, taken to jail, spent some time in jail, and then I ended up getting uh, charged with a slew of charges. And I took a misdemeanor plea deal, as I think probably 90% of J6ers or maybe more than that um, are doing. But what's been different about my experience is even though I didn't enter the Capitol and I was never even accused of any violence or vandalism or theft or destruction uh, because of who I am and what I do, you know, my movement is hashtag walk away, encouraging people to walk away from the Democratic Party, walk away from the political left. And it grew exponentially over the last, you know, uh, starting in 2018 through the time I was arrested. Uh, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people joined the movement and shared their videos and their stories about walking away. And so what they did with me, and when I say they, I don't just mean the Department of Justice, because this is an entire network of very powerful institutions that are working against people in this country. So what they did to me was uh, basically banned me from being able to send and receive money 
banned my organization from being able to send and receive money, banned us from being able to email, banned us from social media, all of this under the guise of I was supporting political violence. And even though I wasn't in D.C. on January 6th on behalf of my organization, I was there just as a private citizen who actually was asked to speak, by the way, at a permitted event at the Capitol. They banned my or I have a foundation, a 501c3, and I have a political pack. And they banned both of my organizations from PayPal, Venmo, Stripe, Patreon, our donor portals, our email services. And then just absolutely raked us through the coals for for it's still going in the media. I mean, if you were to Google my name and read the media, what you would believe is that I basically went to the Capitol with a bomb and, you know, with the intention of literally murdering thousands of people. And then when I got caught, I became an FBI informant and I turned everyone in so that I, I mean, it's like the most ludicrous thing. Sorry, I know this is a very long answer, but um that I just I appreciate you saying that they came after me in a very special way because it, it it's very true. No, I mean you 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 do the analogy almost right. I mean a lot of people who could just you know do some research on your name without knowing anything about your story or hearing how you're telling it could you know essentially think you wrote a cannon into the Capitol on, on January sixth, right. and, and we all know that very much wasn't the case at all. And then when you talk about the narrative shift, the actual whole walk away process, like you said, not just the DOJ or the Democrat Party as a political movement, but in totality, it's like when your narrative no longer lined up with theirs, their use for you was over. So not only did they try to, you know, eliminate you by putting you in jail and trying to throw some hefty charges up against you, they wanted to absolutely cancel essentially your life, any kind of way to make a livelihood, any kind of way to make a living, have your voice heard, have your story told, not just in what happened in and around January 6th, but with all the other great things that you were doing. So I think it's great you're out here fighting the good fight, Brandon. And, you know, we could, you. we could segue that right into talking about how we've seen this government and some of the federal agencies, namely the DOJ, the FBI, components of DHS, weaponized against the American people. You've probably seen it now more than ever since you're telling the story. You're hearing other people tell you their stories and you're in and about the communities, you know, kind of seeing it in real time, a continuation of what happened on January 6th. How do you think we get past where we're at right now with the way the government is because it seems like anytime we pull the curtain back on just a little thing let's just say some of the most recent revelations from the joe biden scandals and, and the potential that has for illegalities over the course of his political career both as a senator and the vice president up to now it's like you go and turn on the news on sunday the new york times the washington post the wall street journal ran with no stories on, on, on anything to do with joe biden so the Sunday morning news circuit decided to run with no stories on Joe Biden. Instead, they wanted to talk about hypotheticals with Donald Trump and his latest indictment. Right. OK, so um, I'll, look, I, all I can tell you is after what I've experienced firsthand and so many people close to me, because I've now through this process become friends with a number of J6ers. So sure. I know that they share a very similar experience to me having their lives and their families' lives crushed. Um, and and again, I want to kind of drill this point home to your audience, because it's something that I think that people don't think about that much, is that the left wing media, which is the majority of the media in this country, um, I, I mean, I'd say at least 85 to 90 percent of our media is left wing, maybe more um, see it. They believe it is their responsibility and their duty at this point to almost be, see themselves as a prosecutorial arm 
of the Department of Justice and the Democrat Party. So, I mean, literally, I have left wing reporters from CNN and other major outlets who are constantly contacting my judge, who are constantly contacting my uh, my prosecutor and reporting to them on things I'm saying on social media or things I'm doing in the real world in an attempt to get my my probation violated and and things like that to have me thrown in jail. And so the reason why I'm telling you this is because your question is, what do we do um, at this point? My attitude is pretty nuclear. Um, I don't really have like a measured approach to this anymore. My, my belief is that the only solution to any of this is for Republicans to somehow take power in 2024 to get somebody like Donald Trump elected, who especially at this point has a vested interest in fighting back against these people because he's now being targeted more than anybody. I mean, he's like the ultimate J6er now at this point. And then not only do we need to go in there and just completely like gut the Department of Justice and the FBI and everything else. But I actually want to see congressional hearings where left wing media reporters are dragged in and forced to testify before Congress about the the compulsive lies that they're telling, the narratives, the, the stories that they're not telling. I'm not. I, look, I want to be clear. I don't want to violate the Second Amendment. I don't want to trample on the Constitution. That's not what I'm about. I actually do believe that people have a constitutional right to lie and, and to lie in the media if they want to. All I'm saying is let's get it out there and let's expose it. Let's show the world what the left wing media actually is, because that's the biggest problem. The left wing media, in my opinion, is much more dangerous than even the FBI and the Department of Justice to some degree. Because they're trying everything in the court of public opinion, and it's the court of public opinion that's making people absolutely deranged and insane uh, on the left. And that's pretty much causing, I think, every problem that we have. No, that's an excellent point you make, you know, not trampling on people's First Amendment rights of their interpretation of the truth and, and to go out there and give what their vernacular is of the narrative, whether they know they're willingly lying or not, you, you still want to be able to afford people those rights. But at the same time, and it's great that you mentioned the congressional hearings because we always hear the, the uh, bureaucrats and the people up in Congress and the people that worked in components of the federal government that were interacting with these big tech companies throughout the course of you know the last two election cycles and the entirety of the pandemic, the fallout from January 6th, basically censoring anybody that tried to bring sensible argument to the conversation. You never go back to all of these people who work at Facebook and Meta and, and Twitter and X and all of these companies who were on the other end and actually doing the bidding of these people. I think they're just as complicit in, in the actual crimes that were committed as the people up in Congress, like, you know, Adam Schiff just emailing people or, or you have FBI agents in the San Francisco field office emailing people at social media companies saying, like, we don't want this voice heard, ratchet it down or nuke them. And, and, and they have to be held accountable, too. Like, what was the premise that they used? What was the company policy or guidelines? What was the legalities or lack thereof that they use to be able to censor and silence people. And we need to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. So, okay. Now, and when you bring social media into the conversation, then that shifts my opinion a little bit, because I said a second ago that I actually do believe people have a right to lie and sure. the media has uh, a constitutional right to lie. Now, when we start talking about social media at this point, I believe it's a whole different ball game. And here's why. Because, first of all, they are absolutely creating an uneven playing field and, pe and people having a right to uh, share information, share their voice. You know, they're pushing buttons and saying this voice is allowed to be heard and this one's not allowed to be heard. And I'm very, very tired of this argument that these are private companies so they can do whatever they want. I 
absolutely believe I'm not a lawyer. I haven't studied the law, but I bet it would take very little work to find some statutes that are being violated, especially now when we live in this age of increasing monetization on social media. When you've got a business model that basically says you can join our platform and you can earn a living on our platform, you can earn a living by creating content. But behind the scenes, you've got people pushing buttons saying, okay, if you if you share this narrative, we're going to elevate you and we're going to we're going to incentivize you with money. So if you go out and you say that covid is basically airborne AIDS and therefore everybody should be wearing 17 masks and not leaving their house and going and getting a new vaccine every two weeks, we're going to amplify your content. We're going to make you super rich. We're going to incentivize you. We're going to make you a star on social media. And then if you've got other people who are doctors who have gone to medical school who are saying medically, this doesn't make sense. And we know that these uh, med- th- these um medications are effective in treating COVID, whatever. So we're going to suppress your content. We're going to make sure no one hears it and we're going to make it impossible and maybe even completely demonetize you, which has been done to me, by the way, you know, my Facebook, um, there are entire elements of my Facebook page that I can't monetize at all. And they won't give me an explanation. I've I've never had a violation. I've never had a strike, but I've been uh, communicating behind the scenes with reps at meta. And they're just like, yeah, your account is restricted from monetization. Why? So, I find it really, really hard to believe at this point that there isn't some way legally we can go after these companies and say, you can't have a business model where you're telling some of the people they're allowed to earn a living, but other people are not allowed to earn a living. Meanwhile, you're behind the scenes pulling all the levers to determine who makes money and who doesn't make money like this. There's no way that Congress can't do something about this. Oh, that's it. And uh, hopefully with larger numbers in the House and taking back the Senate next year and with Donald Trump, uh, you know, hopefully being able to win the presidency with the, you know, the retribution that he plans to bring for the American people that we could start to really get to the bottom of this and get everybody back to being able to earn a living normally again. And uh, I, I think that's one of the biggest pieces that a lot of people miss out on this. There are so many great voices out there. But when you talk about how this hits home and negatively impacts the job that they're trying to do just based off of something simple like monetization, social media accounts, it's huge. So I'm glad that you brought that up and we hit on it. And then, Brandon, last thing I want to touch with you on, this all kind of encompasses in some way or another everything that's going on with President Trump right now, especially after his latest indictment into January 6th. It's a big, you know, very gray area interpretation of the First Amendment. You know, obviously he didn't enter the Capitol on January 6th either, but, you know, saying that he had something to do with orchestrating it. And then the whole premise for it looks like the legal case is you had two different groups of people that were telling you something and the Justice Department says if you listen to the wrong people, you're guilty, which I think is just absolutely mind-blowing to me. It's like everybody has the ability to formulate their own opinion and everybody has the ability to go and, and listen to people and make a decision based on, you know, free will. What do you think, uh, you know, watching this whole thing unfold, where is it going to go and uh, how do you think President Trump is doing? You know, it seems like, I mean, he's about to take the stage in New Hampshire in about an hour right now here on uh, this Tuesday edition of the show. And, uh, you know, it seems like he's just uh, taking it in stride. Yeah, it does seem that way. I'm I'm constantly amazed by the way he's handling these indictments. And it's actually given me uh, a whole new respect for him, because I'll be really honest with you. After January 6th, my um, 
the way I felt about him really started to change because, you know, I was hardcore on the Trump train from 2018. That's the moment that I walked away through 2020 when I voted for him for the first time because I didn't vote for him in 2016. Sure. And then after January 6th and everything that happened and there was kind of this silence and especially with someone like me who I think has been so high profile and such a you know ardent supporter, I was kind of like, what the hell? And I, I, I really felt very abandoned. And I think a lot of people did. Um but now that he's actually going through what we've gone through and in, in I'd say probably much worse in many ways, of course, he's got a lot more support. He's got a lot more money, uh, and, you know, and a lot more everything. But um, I, I look at the way that he's handling all this because there's a lot more at stake with him. You know, I will say, at least with me, um, you know, I never sat around worrying, like, am I literally going to be in prison for the rest of my life? I mean, I guess I did have that thought a few times, but I mean, with what he's up against, that's a very real possibility and he seems to just kind of be like you know one more indictment and we're going to win the presidency now i don't know if that's showmanship and he's just out there kind of like rallying the spirit of the american people to stay strong and power soldier through it uh or if he um if he believes it but either way i think it's um it, it's heroic you know in a lot of ways and so um it's really kind of reignited my um you know, my belief that this is exactly the type of warrior that we need to get behind to fight against these people, uh, because this is like an army uh, of people with no conscience, no soul, uh, no limits, no boundaries. And and it's going to take someone like that to, to fight back against them. So it, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how he does it, but it, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, there's a lot of people uh, who don't realize just about the entirety of the Democrat Party. You know, they just don't care. And that's the thing. It's a, it's a lot like that Hillary Clinton complex that caught up with her in 2016. She never thought she would lose. She never thought it was a real competition, regardless of what the polls or how the debates went. And at the end of the day, you know, Donald Trump wound up sticking one on her that she's never going to be able to live down. And, and we're, we're hoping that he's able to do it again next fall. Brandon, this has been awesome sitting down with you for, for the first time today. We're definitely going to look forward to having you back at some point in the future we're going to live link the walkaway campaign in the show description today if there's anything else you want us to live link as well in addition to your social medias what are they yeah i would love to ask uh, all of your 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 supporters and viewers and listeners to please get on our new app it's called walkaway social it's available in the google play store and the apple app store um, you can, we have a direct link to the apps to load them. If they go to walkawaysocial.com, walkawaysocial.com. And just a, a brief description here is that this is the autonomous platform we've created to rebuild the walkaway movement off of Facebook. That's where we originally built it. We grew to over half a million on Facebook. Again, tens of thousands of videos and people telling their stories. Well, now we're doing it on our own app called Walkaway Social. <clears throat> so please, even if you didn't walk away from the Democratic Party, people are like, ah, oh, but I didn't walk away. We still need you to support this movement. We need you to share the videos, share the stories, get on there, interact with the community. We're always doing events. We're always doing cool stuff. We want everyone to be a part of it. So go on Walkaway Social, join the app, join the community, and share it, please, with everybody. We'll live link those as well. This is the thank you. This is the founder of the official Walkaway campaign. Great sitting down with Brandon Straka today. Brandon, have a good day. You too. Thank you. And another great episode of the show today. Miss Noah and Antoinette McCann, thank Will Upton enough for coming in and co-hosting with us. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and want to hear the now almost 270 other editions of the show, you can find us across every downloadable podcasting platform. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to the show and rate it. Leave a review. And don't ever forget to download, listen, and like. 
Steak for Breakfast content. Also across social media is Twitter, Getter, Truth Social, and Instagram. Find the Steak for Breakfast accounts. Follow them and hit the notification bell. I want to thank all of our guests for coming down today. Mr. Brandon Starka joining us for the first time. Newsweek, Senior Editor-at-Large, Josh Hammer, the official spokeswoman for MAGA War Room, Inc., Caroline Levitt, and the People's Pundit, Richard Barris. They all helped make steak great again. Guys, don't worry. We're coming in hot, and we'll be back this Friday. We got another absolute heater of an episode. Kings of Cortez, Jesse Banal will definitely be here. Jim Nels is coming in to co-host. So on behalf of the pod team and our special guest today, Will Upton, have a great rest of the week, and take care. Madam Fallon, have you reached a verdict? We have. Is your verdict as to all the defendants, as to all counts, or is it a partial verdict? It's to all defendants and all counts. What is your verdict? We find all the defendants not guilty. (laughs)